2: always carries an automatic weapon the last man on earth is hunting
0: See, you got a mad scientist. You know me.
3: And about your work.
0: My work? Incremental effects, countermeasures to toxic agents in liquid systems delivery. Microbiological letters, January 1975, remember? You know what it means? I was
2: a med school senior when they scratched the world.
4: Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, joining me once again is Mr. Morse There has never been a Projection Booth. There never
1: was a Projection Booth. Also back
4: in the booth is Mr. Andrew Nettie. Hi, brother. How's your ass? This week, we're discussing the 1971 film from director Boris Sagal, The Omega Man. The film stars Charlton Heston as Robert Neville. Possibly the last man on Earth after a plague which has killed the majority of the population leaves pockets of albino mutants who can't stand the sun. They're known as The Family and are led by the one and only Anthony Zerby as Matthias. They vowed to kill Neville if it's the last thing they do. We will be getting into spoilers about this film as well as The Last Man on Earth, I Am Legend, and the book on which all of the above are based by Richard Matheson. So, Morris, I have to ask, when was the first time you saw the Omega Man, and what did you think? I think I was about 10
1: years old or so. It was showing on TV in a modified version, although, interestingly enough, I think I realized years later that the only thing that they censored out of it was Rosalind Cash in the nude. None of the violence, so there you go for standards. But um, yeah, I was about 10 years old, used to show, I think, every year on TV for quite a while. And it scared the shit out of me. Uh, I, I remember feeling really, really unsettled by it. I don't know. I was trying to work out for years what it was. And certainly, I think the music had a large part of it. We'll certainly get into that. But man, those cloaks that the family wore, that was some scary shit in the albino eyes. Yeah, it, really, for years, I've loved and loved this film. Watching it again for the booth, I might have a few different thoughts, but... Yeah, overall, it's been a film I've loved for years.
4: How about you, Andrew?
5: Much like Morris, it would have been late-night television. I can't remember exactly when, but it was a long time ago. I've been a big fan of the film ever since. In fact, uh, it's kind of my I'm-coming-home-drunk, need-to-chill-out-on-the-sofa-for-a-little-while. What film do I put on? It's always The Amiga Man before I go to bed. So I've seen
4: it a number of times. Which speaks to your heavy drinking. Yeah,
5: (laughs) that's quite true. That's quite true. Uh, in fact, I've seen the first twenty minutes of it countless times. It really made a huge impression on me. I think I think Morris is really onto something when he talks about the music. The score is such a crucial part of the overall feel and mood of this film. Genuinely creepy film. It's almost an obligatory phrase on on the on the projection booth about nineteen seventies films. But it's you know as it's an early nineteen seventies film, of course. No one gets out alive. It's a pretty, it's a really dark film. It's a really um, downbeat film. It has some great action scenes in it. And I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this. Even though I, he's probably got a bad rep these days, I am a big fan of a lot of Charlton Heston's acting roles. And I, and I
4: think he's great in this film. Were either of you guys familiar with? The book, I Am Legend, it doesn't sound like Morris. you would have read this at 10 years old, but have you gone back since and read it? I read
1: the book maybe about 20 years ago. For, in preparation for the show, I went and listened to the audio book and found I actually enjoyed it a lot more than when I first read the book. At the time, I just remember sort of thinking, oh, hang on, this is nothing like the Omega Man. I mean, I, I guess I enjoyed it at the time, but there was an aspect to it which I've enjoyed a lot more this time, and that was like the two-chapter-long, I think, or three-chapter-long focus on the the science that he used or the experimentation that he used to sort of work out what what made the vampires tick. And as you say, yeah, I didn't actually get into it at 10 years old, but I have read it um,
4: a long time ago. How about you, Andrew?
5: I would have read it about 10 years ago, I think. Terrific book. Very sort of uh, somber book was interested yes, in how much of the book is really just a media a meditation i suppose on 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 human existence on science on the nature of i suppose being and and yes, long passages where Neville, the main character, is basically trying to figure out these these creatures that are sort of. Gathering outside his house every night, these sort of weird shuffling zombie type creatures they 're not nearly as cool as they are as in um, the Omega man are they are they actually some sort of supernatural being? do they have a supernatural creation or are they the product of some sort of scientific experiment or some sort of you know some sort of science gone wrong so but i, I enjoy the book I think it's great, and I think you know it's one of a number of uh, of good books that uh, Richard Matheson, the author. Wrote, of course. He also was, you know, was was. I think he was quite prolific in terms of film, and he wrote television, and you know, done some terrific stuff. And of course, who doesn't like who doesn't like some of the work he's done for film, including I think it was Trilogy of Terror is one of his. I think.
4: Oh yeah, definitely. And he helped write uh, one of my favorite things in the whole world, The Night Stalker, which was the first uh, Kolchak movie. Yeah, he dabbled in vampires throughout his career because he also did the. Uh, I think it was. Dan Curtis, again, doing the Dracula nineteen maybe seventy eight I think it was, with Jack Palance.
5: Right. Well, okay, despite that, I think he's been really, really good, yeah.
4: He wrote quite a few things that ended up being turned into movies. There was a little while there where Hollywood was just going nuts with his stuff, with uh, What Dreams May Come, and Stir of Echoes seemed to come out within just a matter of, I don't know, just a few years from each other. I could be just compressing time in my own head, though. But yeah, he he was great. And then he actually tried to get I Am Legend made and adapted the script himself for Hammer Films, and it never actually happened. Um, and I went back, and there's a, a book version of this, which has an intro by Mark Dawidziak, who also wrote a fantastic book about Kolchak, the Night Stalker Companion. And they really slag on The Last Man on Earth, which was the first adaptation of I Am Legend, which ended up kind of using some of the script that Matson wrote. And then he really talks shit about a Mega Man. And then for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just because maybe when it was coming out, they were praising I Am Legend, the Will Smith film. And it's just like, OK, that's a weird thing to do. I don't know why we, you would necessarily do that.
5: Actually, it's really interesting looking. at So he also did the Night Strangler in nineteen seventy three. That was another Kolchek film. He did. He did the script for Jewel, uh, that nineteen seventy one film. You know about the about the sort of uh, possessed truck, or not, Who knows? The tr- um, he did the screenplay for The Devil Rides Out. He really, he really did a huge amount of stuff.
4: Yeah. And he was very prolific, especially with his film work when it comes to things like working with uh, Roger Corman and doing things like Comedy of Terrors and The Raven. So yeah, he was, it was right around that time that he was adapting his own work. He was adapting I Am Legend for the screen. And I'm trying to remember what they were calling it. Um, it was the Night Creatures was what he was calling it. So not to be confused with the Night Strangler or, or the Night Stalker. <laughs>
5: <laughs> and, and of course, sorry. I just have to say too, of course, that episode, that, that that trilogy of terror, nineteen seventy five, with Karen Black and that 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 little voodoo doll.
4: Yeah, the Zuni fetish doll, one of the best things.
5: Twenty five minutes of television that I have to say, along with the Omega Man, haunted me for a large number of years in my youth.
4: Yeah, watching that on a like I don't know weekday afternoon, the four o'clock movie on Channel Seven man oh man that trilogy of terror just freaked me the fuck out and i i can barely remember the other two stories that went with it but when it comes to that zuni fetish doll and that end shot of karen plaque with the knife
5: one of the great things about having a having a child is of course you can then subject them to all the tv you had as you as it you know as a youth and my, my daughter and i've shown my daughter trilogy of terror and um yes we watched the whole thing the other two uh, the other two i can hardly even remember even though it was only a couple of years ago but she and I both really geek out on that Karen Zumi fetish doll scene. In fact, I have. there was one time when I did come home one day and she was sitting in the hallway with a knife, stabbing the floor as a sort of homage to it. She thought that would <laughs> – I'd, I'd get a kick out of that, which is I sort of did in a creepy way, yes.
4: I'm not sure I'm coming around to your place, Andrew. The thing about the I Am Legend book that I find interesting is how it's a story of vampires, but it's – Our main character finding out why vampires are considered real and all of these scientific explanations for everything like you know, we've talked on the show i don't know how many times about vampires and all of the trappings of vampires and all the little things i mean just recently we talked about daughters of darkness and there's this whole thing that i forget about which is oh yeah vampires don't like running water or if you throw a knotted rope to them they're very ocd and they have to unknot the rope and stuff it's like okay those are two vampire things that i'm not too familiar with but then you get things like the mirrors, you know, not casting reflections, the idea of uh, garlic being uh, dangerous to them, snakes, of course, through the heart, all those things. And he goes through, Matheson goes through, and I am legend, and talks about each one of those things and how they might have a scientific explanation to them. This whole thing of like, Oh yeah, the vampires, they, their skin reforms very quickly. That's why you can shoot them all day long. But if you open them up with this wooden stake, then they're, the seal is broken. The air gets in and they, die that way, or they actually can see their reflections in mirrors, but they don't like looking at themselves. So they break the mirrors and they hate mirrors and all these things. So it's interesting how he uses that as like, Oh, I'm going to explain away vampires in this way. And this, like you were saying, he's very, very scientific, Robert Neville, because he is one of the guys that's behind this whole vampire plague. So, we have the mixing of science and also the whole science behind why is he immune. He's one of the few people that's immune to this whole thing. So, it's a nice way of giving us this stuff while also giving us a very tense vampire story. That was something I think many years ago, as I said
1: uh, at the start of the show, that maybe took me out of the book at the time because I sort of thought, well, we've got this narrative and we're spending, you know, a couple of whole chapters breaking the story. Where's the story? Let's get on with it. What happens? Where's he going to kick the vampire's ass? But this time around, maybe with a few more years of maturity on me, I'd like to, I hope that's the case anyway. Uh, I just, I found it riveting, really listening and sort of getting to respect Neville through the book in a different way to what we might see in the films. Uh, i mean admittedly i know that from what you've said mike that the um that the uh, original film was slagged off a lot but there was no way that i well that i believe that they could have filmed all that level of experimentation it's really a very descriptive thing uh but as we'll probably get into when we talk about the vincent price film further it really is the closest thing out of the three films that we have to the original book that it's just taking that scientific part of it, the couple of chapters, I can't imagine how they would have
4: filmed that. What did you think of The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price?
5: First watch for me for a long while, I thought it was actually really strong. I I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's the most, as Morris said, it's the most connected to the source novel. It is a lot of parts of the film are, yes, just him talking about, are they they zombies, are they vampires, are they scientific are they supernatural but it does have some genuinely creepy aspects to it I mean I think the whole Vincent Price is just living in this suburban house in in what looks like this sort of normal suburban street and just cruising around by day basically you know staking staking well are they vampires what are they these creatures through the heart and then at night basically you know being in his house I think there's that whole aspect of the smoking pit where he puts all the bodies that he finds outside his house every morning, um, which is really sort of, you know, because I, I think also in the film there is this intonation that it might have been, you know, the, the sort of vampire slash zombie contagion might have been the result of some you know, might have been some, the result of some sort of airborne virus from some sort of war, which is very much like, you know, you see that in other 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 films around that period, like you know Stanley Kramer's On the Beach, um, it's 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 that low key suburban sort of hell, which I think is really very effective. And I suppose given that, and of course when I first saw the film, I don't know how long ago, I had no idea that it had been filmed in Italy. But I mean, looking at it now, it's not only that sort of evocation of this, this sort of weird deserted suburban America. It's made middle America. It's made even It's made even more bizarre by the fact. Of being a sort of weird, deserted suburban America in Italy, which gives it an additional layer of sort of strangeness and creepiness and kind of artificiality, which which I think really really works on a number on a number of levels. And I think I think because Vincent Price is not an action star because he has a sort of a very low key presence in many respects that enables the themes in. Um, the last man on Earth to really come to the thought to, to the fore, you know. I, I mean, as, as much as as I'm a fan of the Amiga Man, you know, um, Vincent Price is not tooling around the city in a in a convertible with a machine gun shooting at mutants. You know, he's basically it's very low key. It's and you get a real sense through him of the terror and the horror of his situation. I think it's a, I think it really works. Basically,
1: if I had to sum it up in a couple of sentences, I'd say that you know Charlton Heston couldn't do forlorn. And Vincent Price couldn't do defiant machismo, which we've already gone and said, you know, if he wasn't an action star. But that essentially you know, suburban hell, what you've gone and described there, I think is another really great expression. In each film, it opens up with uh, the the Robert Neville or Robert Morgan, as he's called in this film. For whatever reason. The opening 10-15 minutes it's a character assessment before they actually sort of go up to So, right here's the plot this is why he's in this weird situation of there being no one else around. Vincent Price just he has this hang dog look I mean he's doing everything by the book unlike Charlton Heston he's really hugely methodical but you, you almost sort of wonder why he's still there. He has this look on his face uh, we, as we find out later on, he's lost his wife and daughter and we get to see that all in flashback. But he has this look on his face like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. And in each film, we get the calendar, that good old fashioned cinema trope as a reminder to our main characters to, wow, it's been this long since I've last seen another human. But uh Vincent Price, I've always been a fan of him as an actor, but I can't remember any other time seeing him look as defeated as he does in this film, and he does it right from the very beginning of uh of The Last Man on Earth. So I think for a large part of this film's success is that really insular I I can't stand the world anymore. Look, but he doesn't know what else to do. He's not going to throw himself off a cliff or anything like that. But he really does have that look, as if to say, "I don't even know why I'm here. My wife and my daughter are gone. No one else is here. Why am I here?"
5: There's no sort of you know green velvet smoking jacket and pirate cuffs for Vincent, is there? He's just he's just going no. around in his normal his normal clothes. He's basically just he's almost living this weird sort of parody of an of, of what would have been his suburban life. Goes to work in the morning, killing you know, killing, killing whatever these creatures are. Dumps them in the smoking pit, which is very effective. Comes home at night, sits in his house, drinks himself into a stupor.
1: And that's another thing about Neville or Morgan that is in alignment with the book, because the uh, you know the Robert Neville of I Am Legend, the book, is completely methodical. He has everything that he crosses off. So right, I'm going to look at this sector. Boom, I'm going to I'm going to get rid of those. Uh, creatures during the day, uh, every day. That's what he does. In the Amiga Man, Charlton Heston can afford a morning out to go watch, or an afternoon to go watch Woodstock, and completely lose track of time, which is not something that Robert Neville's supposed to do. He's been in this situation for three years or so, and you would have thought, why would he be that haphazard? But Vincent Price in The Last Man on Earth. He's doing, yeah, this makes sense. You know, he knows that if he's going to survive, then he has to be methodical. He has to be home at such and such a time. And if he's going to get rid of these vampires, then he's got to track every inch of the city. Charlton Heston's going for a a jog in his tracksuit, you know, when he feels like it. Has a little piece of paper there, which is, oh, yeah, I, I think I've visited that part of the city. Yeah, okay, I think I can cross that off. He's a scientist. He's supposed to be far more methodical, but... Oh, I guess, yeah, well, the Vincent Price character is also a scientist. It's only the one in the book who isn't. Is that right? Do I recall that
4: correctly?
5: He is a scientist in the film and a scientist in the book, I'm
1: fairly sure. I do a feel that he wasn't a scientist in the book. He was taking a very sort of methodical approach because what would a scientist do? But I don't think he's actually a scientist.
4: I don't know what it is, but each one of these movies, no matter what one we're looking at, the magic period is about three years. And we always get the idea of the calendar and how long it's been. And each one of these seems to be taking three years. There's vast differences in so many of these movies. Does he find a dog? Does he not find a dog? It, do we get to see his wife come back? Do we get to see his daughter? Is the Ben Courtman character there or is he not? All of these different variables and the way that they mix and match them but the whole idea of three years almost always seems to be in there.
5: Ben Cortman actually is a much, much more um, vivid character in the book, actually, I think, than the film. You know, he's kind of really – Ben Cortman being his neighbour, who was his friend, who now basically leads this nightly chorus of the undead, you know, to to mill around um, uh, Morgan's house. You know, and I think in the book there's that real – there is this real sense of – Robert Neville basically trying to find Cortman. You know, Cortman in particular really annoys him. If you can just find where Cortman is sleeping during the day, you can kill him, and that's one less thing tormenting him. And let's be honest, who hasn't had a neighbour you'd like to stake through the heart? You know, for being really annoying. You know,
1: not going to say anything in case my neighbours are listening.
5: <laughs> I've got a whole household of them on the other side of the on the left side of the fence. Yeah, where do they sleep during the day? <laughs> You've got to find that nest. That's right. And that's the other thing too. Having, having in the book and in the film version The Last Man on Earth, there is a strong sense, and am I, am I mistaking this, that he's haunted because he fed, he, he, his daughter died of the plague, whatever that was, and, I mean, at that point society was still sort of vaguely functioning, so there was this ordinance that everyone, you know, the bodies would be dumped in that smoke, which is. Where that smoking pit comes from to be disposed of, which is a is a wonderfully gothic, almost medieval plague sort of sense, you know, it's sort of sense to the whole thing. But his wife then dies of the plague, and of course he won't feed. He doesn't. He just can't bring himself to, to, to throw her into the into into the pit and into with this anonymous massive burning body. So he buries her, and she comes back to life. I always got that sense from the book and the film that she has. She comes back to life. Or at least he has very strong visions of her coming back to life. And, and the, the inference I always got there was that he had to kill her.
4: That's exactly the way that I pictured it too, is that each time he doesn't want to do that to his wife and she comes back and she just is, you know, I, I love her appearance in the movie, especially I think it's really super creepy and that you can tell that she has dug herself up from the grave. Really wonderful. Yeah, very lucky, very understated. Yeah, and there's a little bit of the whole idea of the graveyard and having the um the crypt, the family crypt where he ends up putting the wife's body after he's uh, staked her. There's a little bit of that in a cut scene from the Omega man as well. There's a Rosalind cash. She ends up going and visiting her parents' grave and she sees someone going into or hears noise from a crypt and sees uh, one of the uh, zombie mutant the members of the family with a dead baby. And she, begins to really empathize more with the family because she gets to see the loss of this baby from this mother. And so, you know, it it humanizes her and makes her uh, a little bit more. I mean, she's not unlikable, but she becomes more the voice of reason to that version of Neville who just wants to go out and murder all of them because he doesn't see the humanity inside of these creatures to him. They are 100% monster. And, yeah, the the whole idea of Courtman being this reminder of what his life was, because he's managed to, I mean, I'm going to sound very brutal here, but he's tossed his daughter into the pit, he staked his wife, and then you have Courtman being that reminder of what the world used to be like and coming to his house every single night, pounding on the doors or windows and calling him out. Which is just for me, that's the one of the creepiest things about this whole thing is just him coming back every single night and calling to Morgan slash Neville to come out of the house. And in this one, in Last Man on Earth, I mean, his, his safety precautions are pretty minimal that all he has is the garlic wreath and a mirror in front of his door. I don't even know if he locks his door because later on, courtman manages to get into the house by just pretty much opening up the doorknob and i was like what (laughs) really (laughs) and the garage always seems to be open yeah come on dude you need to have a little bit more security
5: he's not tooled up either is he in the first one i don't think i don't think there's a single fire i don't think there's any firearms in it i mean he's not he's not the walking arsenal that charlton is in the amiga man that's for sure
1: vincent was looking to uh, go for presidency of the nra and they said well hey dude come on you know Charlton was had a had an arsenal in the Omega Man. What did you have? You had a few bits of wood and a hammer. You can't go to the
4: NRA.
5: He does have his own lathe though, which I thought was pretty cool. Making oh, he keeps know, it making, right there in the living room. Yeah, it's making wonderful. making sort of bespoke spikes to kill vampires.
4: Yeah, I love that montage that we were talking about of him going around and killing the vampires and just the that. Uh, he's the lost man wandering and you have all the, uh, the double exposures of the stuff. It almost si- seems like, like a drinking montage, like somebody going out and painting the town or yes, maybe yes, like yes, even, uh, yes. Rima Land in the last weekend or something where it's just like, Oh yeah, he went from this bar to this bar, but instead it's Vincent going from this place to this place murdering vampires. <laughs> And in this one they are they do not feel very vampire like to me they are very very zombie like with the way that they shamble around and I know that, um, there's been a lot of talk about how influential this movie was on Romero with Night of the Living Dead. And I can completely see that. Also, the other thing that I think helps with this movie to give it that sens- sense of oddness, you know, you're talking about that it's a European or Italian production. So I think a lot of these voices that we're getting are all dubbed in later on. I mean, the guy that has uh, the, the Courtman character, his voice is so strong and so powerful when it comes out and, I kept looking to see if it was matching up with his mouth during that flashback scene, but I wasn't sure because most of the time it's just him going, Morgan, come out, Morgan. (laughs) It's interesting that you sort of bring up that all he says is Morgan,
1: come out, Morgan. The nature of speech throughout uh, all three of these films. I mean, well, there's nothing in I Am Legend uh, and in this there's just a, a minimal Morgan come out Morgan. So you sort of wonder, well, as part of this disease, was their uh, speech patterns all suppressed? And then we see in the second version in the Amiga Man, where that's not a side effect at all. They're no. completely in, in control of their speech faculty and their thinking faculty. So it's interesting that how each the, the zombies or the collective of the family, it's it's different in each retelling of the story, and I was sort of thinking back to another episode of the booth that we discussed on Mike, where we're talking about Potty and that was definitely a zombie film with a difference. So, like here, we're talking about well, speech may or may not be affected by the virus, affected by the disease, whereas the what they did with Bruce McDonald did in Potty Pool was speech was the carrier of the disease and I just I think we discussed at the time of how we found that like a completely wonderful and refreshing take on the whole zombie ethos but it was all centered around speech in each case
5: I mean not so much the first one but that those voices outside Neville's apartment and it gets a bit confusing I know because he's he's Morgan. The main character is called Morgan in the last, in the man Four film, The Last Man on Earth, and he's, he's Richard Neville in the book and in The Omega Man and in that third film <clears throat> that we probably have to discuss, I suppose. And the voices outside um, Neville's apartment in The Omega Man, that, that was one of the creep, going back to that thing about what scared me about this film when I first saw it. That really scared me, those creepy, falsetto, strange voices, and they're deliberately taunting him. You know, um, I just thought that was, that's such a a, a great aspect of the of Amiga the Man. The other thing just just to, about The Last Man on Earth, I think it's important to talk about, which is also in the book, is the whole notion that, you know, Morgan is going around and Vincent Price is going around killing all these creatures because he wants to sort of, you know, he thinks they're an abomination and they're not natural. But as it turns out, you know, there's a third group of, so there's Neville, there's those sort of shuffling Zombie vampire like creatures, and there's a third group of, of 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 beings who are sort of humans who've managed to evolve beyond the the, the sort of evolve beyond what the, the Ben Courtmans and the other sort of shufflers shuffling sort of vampiric things are into another society, and they see Vincent Price as actually the not nominally not not them. So at the very end, of course, and there's that whole sequence where they send a, a woman, you know, woman to sort of to be with to be with Morgan, who turns out to be a spy and who's spying for this new society of, um, of 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 humans. I suppose you'd call them humans. I mean, that's something again that that was very strong in the book. It's very strong in The Last Man on Earth. That notion that actually, in the end, it's it's Morgan who is the is the horrific thing, is the murderer. Is the, is, the, is the being that really doesn't belong anymore in that society. It's sort of there a little bit in the Amiga Man, and it's probably not really there at all in I Am Legend, the, the most recent remake, but a very interesting sort of aspect of the film.
4: Yeah, and that's where the title comes from, and that's what gets missed a lot of times when it comes to these adaptations, is that he has gone around and murdered... Whether they are full-blown zombies or if they are kind of this half-vampire creature, he makes no distinction. He murders everything. So I did want to just read the last couple paragraphs of the book because when he is there about to be killed by this other generation of vampires that have more consciousness that i think you described them in the outline as militant beatniks um <laughs> because they're they're all dressed like beatniks yeah yeah and they all come out and they've got their spears and stuff it was fantastic they all stood looking up at him
2: with their white faces he stared back and suddenly he thought i'm the abnormal one now normalcy was a majority concept the standard of many and not the standard of just one man. Abruptly that realization joined with what he saw on their faces, awe, fear, shrinking horror, and he knew that they were afraid of him. To them he was some terrible scourge they had never seen, a scourge even worse than the disease they had come to live with. He was an invisible specter who had left for evidence of his existence the bloodless bodies of their loved ones. And he understood what they felt and did not hate them. Robert Neville looked out over the new people of the earth. He knew he did not belong to them. He knew that, like the vampires, he was anathema and black terror to be destroyed. And abruptly the concept came. Amusing to him, even in his pain. A coughing chuckle filled his throat. He turned and leaned against the wall while he swallowed the pills. Full circle. A new terror born in death. A new superstition entering the unassailable fortress of forever.
4: I am legend. So basically, he has become the vampires. He's become the boogeyman to this new generation of people that is living on Earth. They will tell stories of this creature, Robert Neville, for years to come. He's the legend that will give them nightmares because he will come in the night and or sorry, he will come in the day and destroy these things. So that's something that I don't think anybody necessarily gets across that much. Though I think Last Man on Earth gets the closest.
1: And, of course, when we uh, get to discuss later on I Am Legend, the Will Smith adaptation, I Am Legend takes on a very different meaning to what it does in, in the book and in The Last Man on Earth, for that matter.
4: With a lot of these scripts, the whole idea of the woman being his undoing it is what the character Ruth here who shows up, he thinks that he's been alone for these three years. He ends up seeing this woman finding her or she finds him, you know, he's trying to to prove or see if she's really a vampire or not. And she comes up with reasons why what he's doing with the, the tests aren't necessarily, you know, effective on her and all this kind of stuff. But it's, to me, it's one of those classic tropes of, you know, you can't trust a woman who comes along in one of these stories. and it It's kind of a weird thing, but she's the one who ends up being his undoing completely.
5: Watching The Last Man on Earth and The Amiga Man and <clears throat> I Am Legend got me thinking about, quote unquote, last man on Earth films. You know, so there's quite a few of them. If you think uh, there's that, um, there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. That 1959 film. There's um, there's the last woman on earth, the 1960 Corman film. There's, I suppose, to some degree, there's that there's that terrific New Zealand film, The Quiet Earth.
1: Yes,
4: yes, I just watched I've that a few months sword,
5: ago, which I rewatched recently. It's just brilliant. And I suppose, to some degree, 28 days later in 2002, they the comet. The thing about these films is they all encapsulate a sense of what it's what, how it, being the last person on earth or being one of the last people on earth. What are the psychological impacts of that? But also, what what struck me thinking about it was that even when there's only two or three of us left on the on, in the world, we really we just can't get along. We're still sort of we it's still paranoia. We're still there's still racial conflict. There's it can only be two. There might just be three of us. And we still, as humans, find it incredibly hard to get along, the suspicion, the paranoia, you know, and and, and, the, and the mental strain that comes from basically that weird paradox of cracking up because there's no one else around, but also when someone else appears, we can't quite handle it and we distrust them or we, we, we focus in on their, on their differences. Um, it's a really interesting sort of aspect of, of sort of last last man slash human on earth films.
4: The other thing that really comes through in this film that we're going to get a ton when we talk about the Omega man is the religious symbolism that's happening. I mean that Vincent price buys it at a church at the end and he's pretty much right there on the altar. I mean, it's like, okay, yep. I'm getting what you're throwing down right now. This is, I, I understand this now.
5: They're in spades in the Omega man.
4: Oh yeah. But as you say, it is dead.
1: It had to end in a church. Uh, I wonder if that was part of the requirement of filming in Italy as well.
4: And speaking of religious uh, symbolism and stuff, one of the authors who ends up becoming one of the most uh, potent religious scholars, I guess, um, you know, there's always religion going through a lot of his movies is Bill Blatty. I had no idea that the Omega man script got a polished by Bill Blatty, at least according to Charlton Heston's um, memoir, his uh, journals. So I was very fascinated to find out because we talked about the ninth configuration on this show that Heston was actually in talks of doing twinkle, twinkle killer Kane years and years before it ended up being the Stacy Keach movie that we know it to be it was great because he was saying in just a throwaway line in this journal he's like oh yeah we're going to give the script to Bill Bladdy to come up with you know some final polish on it and reading the uh the script versus what we end up seeing in the film there are a couple differences including that great line about Uh, Are you guys really from the Internal Revenue Service? And I am pretty sure that's a Blatty line, because that is just that kind of twisted humor that he loved to do, especially in something like Killer Kane. So let's talk about the Omega Man and that opening of him in the car, just traveling through an empty Los Angeles. I mean, some really super powerful images that we have in here. Apparently, somewhere in the movie, you can see people on the streets and stuff, but I am not able to see that at all when I watch this on, well, I almost said on VHS, but on DVD or Blu-ray, I don't see anybody on the streets here. And just those powerful images of a completely empty L.A. And then and then he just stops,
5: and they have that weird fast mo. They sort of speed up the film as he gets the machine gun, just shoots, and you can just see this figure scrambling in a building above.
4: I hate that fast motion. That's the one thing I would change if I could change something about this movie. I
5: can't like it. I, I think it's just its just a great little touch in a great little opening and then he just basically puts the machine gun down again and keeps driving.
1: First of all, I've got to say, I can't hear theme from a summer place without hearing that old guy in uh, Abe Simpson's old age home in The Simpsons. The guy with the beard? The theme from a summer place. It's the theme. I like the contrast in the diegetic versus a non-diegetic music in this case so we see Charlton Heston driving through these empty streets and we're not quite sure you know there's something that's a mess why is he the only car out there and he's listening to this very laid back smoothest of smooth jazz he gets out takes the machine gun shoots a silhouette continues to drive on and then we get Ron Grainer's score which tells you okay this story is actually going to be quite dark I just sort of want to preface before I sort of go into a little bit more about the actual score. There's a lot of people who've gone and written about film music and said it shouldn't be memorable. If you're listening to the music, then it's not doing its job. I want to call bullshit on that. Oh, yeah. Some of the greatest music is music that, you know, we remember that we hum. I don't see the sin in that. But there seems to be a lot of people out there, possibly not score composers, who say, no, the music should be just there. In the background, you shouldn't even notice it. You shouldn't even know it, but some of the most iconic music that people remember are from movies. So I, I don't know that – I don't understand that mentality. But anyway, just thought I'd put that aside because the there are two main motifs, two main themes that are used a lot in this film. Uh, and really, score composers are the original recyclers because you get these melodies coming in to give you a little bit of melancholy, and later on, they've been – change the bit to work as an action piece or maybe as here's another dark moment in the film, but they're still using the same melodies or motifs. You know, might just spice it up with a little bit of percussion or maybe have a few extra horns here and there. Uh, and that happens a lot with these two main themes that you hear in the Omega Man. And I like, but for me, the two best uses of it Of these two main themes are in the opening few minutes of the film. So there's the one main theme, which we get over the opening credits, which gives you a little bit of, well, this guy's okay, but then there's, it turns into this minor key change where you think, yeah, no, well, mm, the earth has come to some, some sort of problem. You're going to discover more about it. So it, but uh, the other, the other point of, um, Of music that is used uh, really, really effectively in those opening few minutes where he, he crashes the car and Charlton Heston goes into a car lot to go get himself another one. He's having this conversation with himself as if he's talking to the owner of the car lot and you get this really sad theme that's played on a trumpet and that's another thing which they keep using throughout the film and there's something about it that says, yeah, he's, if not quite pathetic, but um this this character he's he's talking to himself it's, it's his little, I don't know I, I don't want to say sad sack but it's not sympathy for him but just more yeah he's talking to himself folks this isn't great and i i, I think Ron Grainer's score really evokes that very very well i'm i'm a big fan of this score of course as the film goes on there are moments where there's music that you don't necessarily take away as remembering but uh, the the two main motifs as I'm going on and on about uh definitely after the first time I'd seen the film, I was remembering uh, for ages and probably the only well, th- another film from that period. Well, maybe it came out a few years later was uh Goblin's score for uh, Deep Red. That was one I carried with me for years. And it was like in about 25 years before I got to see the film a second time. So, yeah, I, but yeah, huge fan of uh, the Ron Grainer score for this film.
5: That's really interesting. I mean, the music is a hugely evocative piece of this film, isn't it? I, mean, I still remember certain parts of the score with certain scenes, like the the scene where, um, you know, I mean, we're jumping well ahead into the film here, but, you know, when R- Richie's gone to try and find the family and Neville chases him and he goes to where the, the family are hiding and they, you, you just see this flash of Richie dead and the, the way the score drops, drops out mm. from under you and and – the, the the use of certain – I mean the swinging music at the very beginning a uh, uh, you know a summer place Heston in this film one of the things I love about this film and rewatching it again recently it really really brought it out to me is that it Neville is basically this aging swinger you know he has this he's not he's not this Dow or Vincent Price character he sort of dresses really fantastically and I just want to say again. Green velvet smoking jacket. the pirate cuff. <laughs> the pirate cuffs and thrills. Fr- you know frilly, frilly, frilly shirts really get a workout in this. It's obviously was Neville Stick when society still existed, and he still wears it. He's got this really groovy apartment in a bachelor apartment in the middle of town. He's got a very laconic sort of attitude. He's a real middle-aged swinger. In the middle of the end, in the middle of this apocalyptic end of the world, where the only other creatures, or so he thinks, are these are this weird sort of group of, of homicidal mutants, and he just refuses to sort of shift that sort of vibe. And that's you know that he that that great scene where he gets into his apartment and he's talking to the statue of Caesar and he's going, "Hang on, it's Sunday. That's right, Sunday. I always dress for dinner on Sunday, which is where we get that he dresses up in the you know the." The crushed black green velvet jacket and the pirate cuffs, and he make he's making dinner, and he's got the music on in the background, and it's all very relaxed. He just refuses to change his his world and his worldview, and he's he's sort of this the sort of post summer of love, you know, middle class swinger habits that he obviously developed when before the world basically collapsed. The other aspect of that, I think, that really crisscrosses with that, which he picked up really clearly, Morris, was. He's also cracking up. He's also quite clearly starting to disintegrate as an individual. You know, he basically talks to himself. He talks to inanimate objects. He he talks to the, the corpse of the car dealer, you know, when he basically goes to get a new car. And that, that I think, comes across also really well in this aspect of, in this version of, of Matheson's work, the way that Neville is just totally Cracking up, and he's on the verge of real, I suppose you'd say he's on the verge of going postal. He's gone postal. He's well over You know, he's basically, and I think these two aspects, they interplay throughout the film, the sort of laconic swinger, devil may care attitude and this really sort of hard-boiled almost sensibility of this man cracking up. And, of course, Heston does that so well because no one could play, you know, cracking up white patriarch. Like, like Charlton Heston. He's just fantastic in it. It's a manhouse!
0: A manhouse! Silent Green is people! There is no phone ringing, dammit!
4: Yeah, that phone ringing sequence is just fantastic. I love that. And no one could give a damn it like, uh, like Charlton Heston could, you know? Again, it's three years after the plague. He's been alone for three years, and yeah, he's just gone nuts. And I love, to me, there's a real theme in this film. This is 1971 that this movie is coming out, and there's such a theme of the old generation versus the new generation. And is the old generation, you know, We talked uh, on this podcast recently about um, the Mad Max films and especially Fury Road and that whole who were the ones that destroyed the world. And to me, it feels like, yep, this is saying that the old generation destroyed the world and now it's moving over for a new generation. And him going to see Woodstock is very telling to me and him mouthing those words and saying the same speech that the characters are saying or the people are saying in that movie, I've find that to be a very, very telling thing, but then you also have the danger of this new generation, quote-unquote, which is 1971, this is when Charlie Manson and his family are getting sentenced for these crimes that they committed, um, what was that, 1968, 69, yeah, we also have the whole idea of the family that wants to break into your house and murder you, it's basically hippies gone wild, is what it feels like to me. See, that's the thing that this film... Maybe one of its
1: failings is in the representation of the family's ethos. So, yes, they, I guess given that this was made in 1971 and the whole Charlie Manson family debacle was still fresh in America's memory, they obviously did have some basing on them. And yet there's that moment in the film where Anthony Zurb as Matthias, who does a great job, you're listening, Heather Drain, there's that moment in the film where... Anthony Zerb, where he's saying, right, well, you know, we had industrialization and look where that got us. In fact, he's also editorializing in the flashbacks as the newscaster. I think the last time we hear from him as pre black cape, he's starting to editorialize and say, well, this is it, folks. You know, we've completely fucked the planet up. What are you going to do about it? And you, you listen to him and you think, well, he's got a point. The old generation has failed and yet the family is too cultish for us as the audience to feel any sort of real sympathy for him. You know, we we side with gun totin, I'm going to shoot everything that moves Charlton Heston, rather than Matthias, who, as I said, makes a valid point about what the old guard had gone and done. But it's almost like, oh, will give him like a minute to make sense. And I think in some ways it could have been Maybe an even more interesting film. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a great film, but it would have been interesting if they would have gone and explored that morality a little bit further. But I guess, you know, their angle was, no, let's just make them like the Manson family. And there's just maybe that little bit of script that the Corringtons were able to get into, just sort of get you to think a little bit about about uh,
4: morality, I guess the family are militant Luddites. You know, the whole idea of anything regarding science is something that they do not want to have any part of. And you know we were talking about the whole idea of um, you know Andrew you brought up like the world of flesh and the devil and that we are still dealing with racism even after the end of the world and that very pointedly the second in charge of the family is this black guy um, who um,
5: Lincoln uh, is it Lincoln Kilpatrick
4: yeah Lincoln Kilpatrick who's playing the character of Zachary and that he. Is the one that, uh, I think in the script, they call it a pig's paradise, um, which is also interesting because you have the connotation of pig as policeman, but then also pig from the, uh, Manson family murders. And, um, him saying, you know, he calls it a honky's paradise, which is where Neville is living. And then he wants to go over, get a cannon and, and just do away with this whole thing. But Matthias is like, no, no, no. We do not truck in the you know in these kind of things, so they end up just getting uh, like a trebuchet and shooting fire at his apartment later on. I have a gun in my room. You give me five seconds, I'll get it.
0: I'll come back down here. Boom! I'll blow their brains out. Scott, you just don't get it, do you? You don't put the power to him brother just a little nitro i can get the cannons out of the old armory we can have him out of there no time i said no we could, but then the curse would begin all over again don't you see yes, yes i see i see him living high in the light while we rot and
5: hide like grubs He will be destroyed, brother. He will. But not by guns, not by machines, not by the evil forbidden things.
4: The tools that
2: destroy the world. The world.
4: Not necessarily the most effective thing in the world when they do have access to cannons and all of the armaments that, uh, that, that Neville himself has access to. But it's interesting to me that they keep talking about how, you know, that he is a child of the wheel and that basically they want to go all the way back, reset everything to before the invention of the wheel even.
5: Where did they get that catapult? That's what I want to know. You know, oh, look, hey, we found a catapult.
4: Cool. Or yeah, where they get to the know-how to make one? I don't know.
5: There's a couple of points there I think that are really interesting. One is that um where does a mega man sort of sit in um, you know, science fiction cinema and it really it so, you know, you've got so, so you know, by by the early '70s, science fiction cinema, you know, was emerging from being a relatively marginal B movie category to a sort of more mainstream Hollywood product, and you know that's that's partly you know the theme, the the Planet of the Apes in 1968 and 2001 with the the two the two game changes in that that would originally you know that would inevitably lead to science fiction becoming a really popular big big budget cinema product and you know would 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 result in films like Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977 but Mega Man belongs to that group that strange group of science fiction films between 2001 A Space Odyssey and sort of Star Wars which are totally run counter to that you know big budget special effects laden films they're focused less on these sort of in some respects, these big extraterrestrial visitors and space travel and more on themes like environmental destruction, overpopulation, authoritarian rule, all that sort of stuff. And I think that's one of the key themes of certainly science fiction cinema in the first half, of or Anglo-American science fiction cinema, certainly in the first half of the 1970s, is this this really of which of, of the Amiga man is sort of feeds directly into is this really strong technophobia, you know, that you can see it in just so many of the films, the sense that we've, you know, we've got more advanced computers, we put humans on the moon, but at the same time those computers are kind of threatening to replace our jobs you know, through automation and the same technology that we can use for good. We, 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 it has, has unleashed absolute carnage in Indochina. And as a part of that, you know, there's that whole theme about technological technological change causing some sort of unintended environmental catastrophe, and you see that in films like No Blade of Grass in 1970, uh, Silent Running in 1971, that incredibly mm. downbeat 1972 film ZPD Zero Population Growth, and of course in in Silent in Silent Green in 1973. It really plays it out, doesn't it, in the in the Amiga Man, the whole anti-technological sort of aspect of it, and just to add another sort of personal interpretation of the of the family and their anti-technological sort of uh, stance. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact this is going on. This film at the height of Vietnam uh, it would have been made in 1970. Um, the war in Cambodia is increasing the, the American, you know. Washington has been basically bombing Cambodia since 1969. The family really remind me of the Khmer Rouge, in the sense that they are at this absolutely peasant guerrilla force. When they overthrew, eventually overthrew the government in Cambodia in 1975, it was like return to year zero. We're going to eliminate all technology. The cities are evil. Um, we're going to build a new a new society, which is is based on sort of anti technological precedence amongst many other things, and so the family are totally like this. They they won't use technology. They basically don't believe in in advanced civilization. The Khmer Rouge rounded up and murdered anyone who had anyone they discovered who had education, uh, scientists, technologists. Of course, there's that really key phrase in the Amiga Man when um, Matthias is you know to that one point with 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 a family of court. Neville, and they're talking to him, and and, um, Matthias says, definition of a scientist, a man who understands nothing until there was nothing to understand. You know, they're they're so Khmer Rouge, and in this kind of film, Heston is like this sort of deep, deep penetration unit in Vietnam. He's behind enemy lines waging this guerrilla war against the sort of Khmer Rouge-like, the fan. There's so many interesting things going on in this film.
1: As soon as you mentioned Luddite, Mike, I thought the exact same thing about the Khmer Rouge. A few weeks ago on the See Here podcast, we spoke about a film called Don't Think I've Forgotten, The Lost Rock and Roll of Cambodia. And that film, it's an absolutely excellent documentary. If you haven't seen it, I urge anyone out there to uh, track that one down. But uh, the, um, the director, I think John Perozzi was his name, uh, he basically sort of takes a story of how Cambodia was this wonderful, flowering, very cultural place, and music was actively encouraged by uh, the by the Prince Sihanouk, and um, it sort of speaks about all these wonderful musical types who, in the West, a lot of us had never heard of. And then the latter part of the film goes very dark once it shows you a know, uh, Pol Pot take. Well, even before then. Where uh, there was a military coup in 1970, and then by 1975, when Pol Pot takes over, and it's the the whole program of agrarian socialism. And uh, yet, once again, to your point, Andrew, they said, uh, if you're, if you're scientific, or if you're a theologist, or you're a businessman, or heaven help, if you actually sort of go too far into the ideology, the Marxist ideology, then you're a threat because you're thinking, we want you to think this way. We're going to send a lot of you out to the country and you're going to be just digging up the fields and we're going to write these propaganda, jingoistic-laden songs uh, and you're going to fall for it and this is the way how we want it to be. We don't want anyone from the outside. We want to get rid of all Western influence, all Western technology. And there I was sort of thinking... Oh, really? Uh, uh, could I compare that story to this? But I'm glad that you went there first, Andrew, because that's the first thing that came to my mind.
5: Much like Matthias has a point, you know, the, the scientists basically unleashed this. I mean, I think in the Amiga Man, the uh, contagion, whatever has happened, and there's less of a sort of philosophical bent in the Amiga Man as to whether the the family are zombies or Vampires, or some sort of supernatural thing, or that there and Charlton wants to kill them all. You know, the scientists have basically unleashed some sort of plague that happens when when there's a sino, you know, sino, sino-Soviet border war, which escalates into a sort of some sort of world war. You know, the scientists basically destroyed the Earth, and uh, I suppose the the, the, the Corollary with um, Cambodia. Um, and I've seen that uh, I've seen that documentary. Don't think uh, I've forgotten, and and sort of written quite a bit about that uh, period of Khmer, Khmer music before the Khmer Rouge came in. Cambodia was, it had, it had a lot of great things and obviously no no support there for the Khmer Rouge, but it was also a deeply corrupt country. It was ruled by, um, you know, basically a bottom-feeding elite who, uh, you know, rifled the country, were very repressive. I mean, the, the Khmer Rouge didn't pop out of nowhere. Corruption Poverty and you know massive massive bombing basically help give them birth. But I mean, so it's yes, the seeds of the current society are then are then into the next society, aren't they? And so Matthias is Matthias is rightly critical of technology in some respects and and all the things that have happened leading up to the, the situation they're in now. From Matthias, and that they really it's a pretty miserable life they have, you know. And as I think uh, Brother Zachary says, you know, we 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 live like grubs. You know, underground only coming out at night while he lives up in that building in that honky paradise. Forget the old ways, brother. But anyway, yes, it's terrific.
4: Matthias has no problem getting over the racial politics because he's white and now he's even more white than white. And I find it very interesting, too, that the whole family is very culturally diverse. When you look at like there's a, a woman in there uh who has very uh, Native American features and then again, she's bleached white you know this everybody is bleached white in this group they all are should be quote unquote equal even though it feels like there is a leader in a very hierarchical kind of thing going on with Matthias at the top and then we go on down from there so he's becoming exactly what it was
1: that he criticized and just sort of coming back to the whole point about them rejecting everything and throwing the baby out with the bathwater technology wise uh, Matthias's instrument of being able to put his message out was through the media. And so as as much as, yeah, he says, well, technology has really screwed us up, but it was all or nothing. He was able to editorialize, as I mentioned before, in the last moment that we see of him in the film before he mutates, if you want to call it like that. And he was able to say what he want and get that message out. I mean, okay, there's no one to give that message out to, but rather than look for... Technology that will serve him and his people well, he says, nah, we will absolutely reject it all, and that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying that that's a script problem, uh, that you know that the story is told as it needs to be told, but it just seems to me peculiar that he would take that all or nothing uh, approach. And probably in a contemporary text, I felt the same way about Lars von Trier and his Dogma Manifesto.
4: Well, and not only are they railing against technology, but it's also a culture and literature and art and everything because they burn down the libraries. They are having book burning rallies and they are burning up artwork. And that's one of the things that's in Neville's apartment is he's got a lot of great works of art that he's saved from the family inside of his apartment. And that's what they go after. They have to make a display when they finally get into his apartment, they wait until he's back. And then they go through and destroy everything inside of the apartment to make sure that they, that they show him that they demonstrate to him that they are capable of destroying the last remnants of culture that he has managed to safeguard from them. So it's not just that, Technology thing, they're going after anything that shows man's beauty, man's progress anything that will show what they are capable of doing. I'm surprised that they haven't gone into the movie theater and burned up that copy of Woodstock. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm also very surprised that Neville hasn't gone through, you know, any of the the archives. I mean, the film schools are right there. He could go through like UCLA and maybe get some really good other films, but instead he's, I guess he wants something that's long, you know, maybe he wants to take a nap in the middle of it. I'm not sure because I can't imagine watching Woodstock Every day, or maybe he sees it once a week or something for three years
5: i couldn't imagine watching it more than once, actually, so that would, that would be my own, my own type of dystopian hell <laughs> <laughs> having, to watch, having to watch the film Woodstock every single day <laughs> to read another layer into this too it's really interesting to look at where this film occurs to in heston's heston's development i mean, as I think I think. And no, you know, no, no support to Heston's pro gun views. But it is, it, it is, a, and also a pity in some respects that um, probably the dominant image we now have of Heston is that interview in, um, is it Bowling for Columbine, where basically Mike Moore quizzes him on on the Columbine shooting, and Heston, who I think was, I think may have had early onset Alzheimer's by that stage.
4: To me, that's one of the worst things in the entire world is seeing that attack interview that he does with Heston. Yeah, that, like- it's
5: a real gotcha moment. and it's. Uh, uh, I mean, as I say, I have no, no truck with Heston's pro gum views at all. But I think more to the point, it sort of obscures the fact that, um, well, Heston was in some terrific films, also in a lot of crap like every single other actor. The other thing I think it obscures too is the fact that, um, you know, in the 1960s, he was a white liberal. He was a Democrat. He supported civil rights. He
4: he was in favor of gun control. He was the head of SAG for a long time. He was the guy. Yeah, he marched
5: with Martin Luther King at that big Washington rally. I think it was Washington. And, of course, like a lot of of people in the late 60s, he sort of went to the right. He would go on to support Reagan. He would go on to become head of the NRA, all those kind of things. But, I mean, I think it's interesting – Reading a bit about Heston, he he initially opposed Vietnam, the American intervention in Vietnam, and then he supported it. He sort of switched over to the right about 1971, which is when the Amiga Man came out, which sort of, to me, uh, strengthens that um, that view of of the Amiga Man as almost being a text about, you know, Heston waging war against the counterculture and against the cultural nihilism that that's come from it, and I think that also is very much in the fact that he his apartment is full of all this wonderful old what what you know at a certain point in history people would have called dead white male culture, but you know modernist culture, the cubist paintings, the books, all that sort of stuff. He's a real he's a real old conservative traditionalist modernist in that respect. I think it's, it's fascinating where that film comes through in his, in his political development. And looking at that book you sent us, Mike, uh, An Actor's Life, which I, 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 must, I must read in more detail. It was kind of a fascinating book. He actually really he put, a of, put a lot of his a personal grunt behind the Amiga Man. I mean, he'd liked, he'd liked the Matheson book, I Am Legend. He pushed to try and get the Amiga Man made. He took a really direct role in getting it made. He there's there's heaps of diary entries. I mean, and, a, and an actor's life is basically, I should have said, an actor's life is basically um, Heston's diary uh, with with editorialised parts throughout it, where he's sort of coming in later in life saying, oh, no, I don't think this now. So he took a really prominent role in getting Rosalind Cash cast in the role that she had as Lisa, which is terrific part in the film we should talk about that more and at one point he sort of thought um you know he actually says at one point which is interesting uh this is another of the this is and he's saying this about the amiga man this is another of the, the not very long list of films i have more or less personally conceived and may turn out to be the best of them of course there's then a footnote saying oh, actually really i didn't really like it in retrospect but yeah he really put a lot of his own grunt into it
4: yeah, the Rosalind Cash character, she is, I mean, she's basically just a Black Panther walking in off the street and popping into this movie, which is great. <laughs> it's like the slang, everything, you know, like calling a mother. I mean, it kind of reminded me, uh, Morris, of when we talked about uh, Trouble Man. I mean, it's like she and Mr. T, I think, would have made a real power couple. Oh, yeah. But she is fantastic. That she is super militant, and you know, talks about the man. Like when she introduces him to the rest of the the group that she has, which. Ironically enough, is very much like a family. There's a standing father, a standing mother, which she is, and a whole bunch of children. She says, that I want you to meet the man, as in the man, you know, Uh as in the power structure, as in the patriarch, as in the police, as in all of these things, the way that she sets him up as that role. So... Yeah, you know, we, we've talked about him kind of fitting into that when she's on the back of that motorbike and just like, you know, don't try to be cute because I can splatter your brains all over the place. It's just like, man, this is a real kick ass chick. Any talk as to whether Pam Greer was ever thought of for the role? Uh, I'm not that I know of. I don't think she really kind of came into her own until a few years after that. There was somebody else that he was talking about, and I remember that he was talking about Diane Carroll in the role, but fought for Rosalind Cash to be in there. and then apparently Cash and uh, the director didn't necessarily get along as well as they possibly could have, which is a shame.
5: Charlton's pretty critical of the director. I think um, you know the director
4: apparently had a bit of a temper problem, I think, or a cigar kind of dismissed him as a television director unfortunately because i I'm, i know he had done a bunch of other stuff and some of it very good some of it maybe not so good but um i'm trying to remember um was it black noom that he ended up doing there were some good tv movies in there and of course he directed a couple uh colombo episodes so he's okay by me in my book does the film actually look like a tv movie to you i can't decide
1: i mean i've never seen it on the big screen it's always been on DVD or on a TV showing and it it just might be a common element of a lot of films at that time, that sort of look, that Warner Brothers look maybe. But there was something about it that made me think, yeah, this looks slightly like a television movie. And I don't have any problem with that, but does it look more that way to you than a cinematic film?
5: I don't know. It it sort of has (laughs) made for television aspects, I suppose. The lighting is one of them. I also think Seagal... Inject some good action scenes into it. I mean, there's, you know, he's that, 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 they, they, there's some of that has a sort of slightly made for TV feel to me.
1: Maybe coming back to the score, there might be aspects of that score by uh, Ron Grainer that sounds like it was being used in a lot of television shows at the time. I'm thinking of the theme from the streets of San Francisco. There's a little bit of that during the action sequences where, um, where Rosalind Cash is on the motorbike with. Charlton Heston getting out of that football stadium, and there's just something about that that reminds me of TV shows like that. And once again, not a bad thing. Just saying that, yeah, some level of similarity. And I know that we've discussed film scores on uh, previous shows that have been on Mike, and this this one, like coming back to that 1970s sound. I mean, I, I think I've said in previous shows where there were composers like Lalo Schifrin that were sort of going for that very funky edge. And um, like we, we discussed Charlie Varick and I'm pretty sure in things like Dirty Harry, he's going for something that's of a funk bent. And this, nothing bad on the score because I love it, but there were moments where it sounded like, yeah, we're going for something that's a little bit funky, but not quite at that level that Lalo Schifrin uh, had been influenced by, so the Blaxploitation composers.
4: And man, we were talking about the religious symbolism before this movie is lousy with it when they capture Neville and they put him in the back of this cart. And apparently I didn't pick this up, but in the script, they're talking about that they are throwing computer papers, uh, basically printouts at him when he's in the back of that, or that's also the hat that he's wearing is a big computer printout. So it's this kind of, uh looks very medieval, um, uh, the conic hat that they put on him, this almost dunce cap as they're rolling him into the, the stadium. And when they get him, they have his arms outstretched when they're going to burn him in the stadium, you know, kind of burn him as a heretic. And then also when he goes and Rosalind Cash, helps rescue him, along with Dutch, who's played by Paul Koslow, when she has him put his hands up, she tells him, they were going to crucify you, baby. And it's just like, yep, okay, we're going to get that time and time again. And then, of course, the end of the film, when his arms are outstretched and he's in the fountain, and is, I think he's even crossed his ankles. It's such a Christ-like pose. It's ridiculous. It was the era of
1: hair and Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. So, for an era that was, in some ways, trying to uh, rid itself of theological mainstream society, but um, but those musicals were all over the place, so it was still very big in popular culture. So in that way, it sort of makes sense that it was there.
5: Are you God? <laughs> that little girl asks <laughs> Chestertown Mister. The little girl is one of the many survivors of the is that is one of that ragtag hippie-ish group of survivors who live on the outskirts of town are you god oh look he gives his blood to save others i mean his blood as he said his blood is the serum because he's neville for those who haven't seen it neville of course is a scientist before the the end of the world and the, there's that there's that contagion from the sino-russian war and that's a very made-for-TV aspect of it, actually, uh, you know, is just so we're in the laboratory with, with Heston watching Matthias on TV and then someone rings up and he says, I'll try batch thirty eight, forty five, you know, and he's in a, in a helicopter taking the batch of serum to somewhere. We don't need to know that. The helicopter crashes because pilot gets the plague and just before he blacks out, Heston injects himself with what he's not sure will be a successful serum to the plague or not, and it turns out that it is, and so he's immune, and his blood is the future of humankind. His blood can basically, you know, and there's a whole part of the film where they're basically trying to make antibodies from his, or, you know, a serum from his blood for, for Lisa's brother, who's, who's affected with the plague, and then at the very end, before he dies, he passes a bottle of the serum to, to Dutch, who I believe you were almost going to, Paul Kelso, who I believe you were almost going to interview
4: for this podcast that was a real shame. I was talking with his wife back in December and I just was about to interview him and she's like, "Oh, wait, no, we've got family in from out of town. Let's talk again in a couple weeks." So I talked again, I think right after Christmas, and it was like, "No, no, you know, not yet. We'll talk very soon. You know, call me, basically email me again in another week or two." Uh, emailed her again. I didn't hear anything back. And then I started to see on Facebook rumors that he had passed away, which of course he did. So that was, um, such a shame. I mean, he was such a great actor. And from what I understand, he was a heck of a guy too. And I only wish I could have heard some of the stories that he had to tell. I know one story that he tells in shock cinema is that again, with the Heston being such a big mucky muck and sag that Colso was, um, screwed over on a previous film with some uh, royalties that he was owed with actually his salary and Heston managed to get the salary paid to him, uh, him and all the rest of the actors that were owed their back salary. So he was kind of sticking up for his own, you know, for his fellow actors as well as for his uh, fellow co-star. There's some weird lines in here too, where he says to Lisa, the Rosalind Cash character, where'd you ever see a stream of fish in Harlem? And I was just like, that's really kind of tone deaf <laughs> for him to say that. Plus, they're in Los Angeles, so wouldn't he say, do you ever see a stream of fish in Watts or Compton or something like that? It doesn't make any sense that he's like assuming that she's from Harlem. It's like, come on, dude, that's a little racist.
5: It's playing into the zeitgeist, isn't it? You know, that black blaxploitation zeitgeist, which was sort of very um – um very New York based. I think a lot of those black exploitation films weren't they mainly shot in New York, or were a lot of them shot in LA as well?
4: Yeah, it was LA and New York, just like the you know the film noir, where it's like okay, they had a little bit of a different feel one to the other depending on where they were, and um, maybe a little San Francisco, but pretty much those two urban areas were where we were seeing most of our black exploitation.
5: Yes, and you could really go to town on the fact that Lisa then turns into the family, at one one of the members of the family, and then is white for a while. And then Charlton has to save her.
4: Yeah, well, a lot of these movies, it feels like we've got the white savior going on. I mean, even in The Last Man on Earth, he goes and (laughs) basically goes up to the Ruth character in that and injects his blood into her, and he's like, I've cured you. And it's like, oh, okay. It's up to the white guy to save the woman, no matter what it is. And
1: scientifically, all it ever takes is one injection to do it.
5: In fact, all, all the Amiga Man, what the Amiga Man really needed on one of those needles was a big red sign that said, "You know, serum."
1: In case of an emergency, break well, glass. something
5: like that. Because and that, and actually, now that we're talking about it, there are made-for-TV aspects of this film. There should have been, but that's one of them. Is the whole thing about? But he, he is again going back to that point. Heston is like this weird, middle-aged, slightly cracked-up. Swinger, tone deaf swinger. You know, he, he, he basically is is he's, he's in his apartment with his gear and his his art, and he's got that big screen that he records himself on. And if that's not you know that big that, that big television screen that he records himself on, and if that's not a sort of an early 70s swinger sort of thing, I don't know what is.
4: Do you think he was making sex tapes before the apocalypse?
5: Neville swung. I'm absolutely sure of it.
4: But we never hear about his wife and kid in this, which I find very interesting, too, that I don't think – yeah, he was leading a bachelor life, and I don't think that we could have accepted – because I know some people couldn't accept anyway this whole idea of him and Rosalind Cash having a romance and – you know, we know they are down to fuck in this movie. They are definitely fucking in this. And that is in 1971. You got to be fucking crazy to p- put that up on screen. I mean, we're just a few years away from, uh, north of the interracial kish between Uhura and Kirk. I mean, and here we have these characters. They're just boning in this movie. It's like, wow. But I, I don't think that we would have accepted it even more if he had had a wife and kid that he ends up having sex with this other woman. He has to be a bachelor in this for us to even begin to accept that he has a life outside of them. And it's never made a big deal of, which is something that I really, really liked. I appreciate that, too. I mean, there are those little weird things like him cutting her down about Harlem and stuff and her, with her patter of of black power, but it's not like, you know, oh, this is a big deal that we're having sex and we're breaking taboos. None of that stuff is going on.
5: He'll with whatever he would have slept with whatever woman basically appeared actually
1: I, i want to ask you two guys a question i don't know whether you've ever donated blood or not but have you ever gone and taken your shirt off while you've donated blood because that happens twice in this movie and you know if i've gone to donate blood here at the red cross i can't recall whether anyone's gone and said anything more than just roll up your sleeve but you know i guess i don't have a chest as good as heston
4: i'm 47 years old there's no way i'm gonna look as good as heston did in three years this guy's 50 years old and he's taken off his shirt in here he's took it off in Planet of the apes i mean if you're built like that you got to take it off show it off a little flaunt it is there any truth
1: to the rumor that somewhere deep in the soundtrack you can hear him saying yeah take that burt lancaster
5: was he ever in a film with Bert lancaster
1: oh man i don't think the two egos could have taken
4: it but If there is, I want to see it. 70 mil widescreen presentation. I do have to say, I felt really bad for Heston all the times that he's writing about that Antony and Cleopatra movie that he wants to do, and then when it comes out, it completely tanks, and he's just like, oh, well, didn't work. It's like, oh, man, I mean, that his whole diaries, I mean, they're just so many disappointments in there and it just shows how he's scrambling to keep working as an actor through all that he's got like four or five different projects that he's working on at any one time
5: which is the actor's life i suppose all well, the successful actors i mean he's also there's a sense i think too that um well now hollywood is changing in the early 70s and he's he's scrambling to try and keep up with that um with that transition, you know, he's not as big as, he's not as big a star as he was, you know, early on.
4: Doing my research, it looks like other than clip movies, uh, we never got Heston and Lancaster in the same place at the same time. We're going to take a break and play an interview with one of the screenwriters of the Mega Man, Ms. Joyce Corrington, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Who is Carl Kolchek? He's a reporter.
0: Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it.
2: With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news service, founded in 1904 by Enrico Paluzzi,
4: Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual.
2: Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire.
4: And what is The Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com.
2: As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could
0: make up.
6: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode... That's PATREON.com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's twelve dollars a year. At least fifty great shows and two terrible ones. That's a price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
2: Kirsten Costello is a model. She has the face people want. She has the look people desire. But now, something else wants her look. Something wants her face. Something not human. <laughs> night waves the debut novel from david irons is a new chapter in terror night waves the novel from cosmic egg an imprint of john hunt publications available now at all good bookshops
5: i'm chris cooling from forgotten tv and you're listening to the projection booth the ultimate movie podcast you like classic movies how about classic tv Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV.
4: Did your writing career and meeting your husband, did those go part and parcel or were you already writing before you met him?
3: I was actually a chemical engineering major at Rice when I met Bill. <laughs> and I worked, I worked in the industry for a number of years, and then I went back got my doctorate in chemistry and taught for 10 years. So mostly, I, early on, I helped Bill by editing his work. It wasn't until we got into doing movies and such, because Bill really didn't take it seriously and didn't want to think about it. Uh, he he could knock out anything in dialogue in a wonderful skill, But I became the plotter. So we would get a project. I would do a, a detailed scene outline, and uh, then he would turn it into dialogue, And that was how we wound up working together.
4: Well, how did you and Bill meet?
3: Uh, well, we were at Rice together. He was a graduate student, and I was an undergraduate student.
4: I can't believe you were a scientist. That's such a different thing than what you ended up doing for the majority of your career. I imagine.
3: I don't think my science particularly informed much of anything except maybe a mega man. There really we used a little bit of what I, I my attitude towards science was. But I think you just you know, if if you have a a brain that organizes well then you can be a good storyteller. At least that was my function, so it worked out okay.
4: We talked a little bit before I started recording as far as how you uh broke into show business. What was that big moment for you like? Bill was writing
3: and he had published a couple of novels. And we were at home one evening and we got a call and he said, This is Roger Corman. And Bill and I are not film boss, so we had no idea he was a major producer director. So um, it, Roger said, Well, I read one of your novels and I'm sure it was his development director who did it. His producers never read anything in my experience. <laughs> and uh, he said, I think you have a very uh, cinemographic Imagination, would you like to do a movie script? And Bill said, no, no, especially. <laughs> <laughs> so I started nudging him and said, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> so, so they talked a while, and Roger said, well, I've always wanted to do a film about John Richthoff, and do you know anything about it? And Bill modestly said, I'm everything. Roger was sort of taken aback, and uh, Bill said, well, when he was young, when Bill was young, he had asthma very badly being confined to bed he took up building model world war ii airplanes little plastic airplanes and so he knew all about bud McTuffin. so roger to test him said okay well how did he die and bill said well there are three theories it gave him the three theories and roger said hey you really do know everything about him so um we started talking about it and bill said he'd think about it and then he called his friend larry mcmurtry who had been in graduate school with bill at rice and larry said oh hell bill Go ahead and write a movie script. You said your writing will still be there. You know, it doesn't kill you to do a script. You just earn money from it. So Bill did a script and sent it in to Roger. And then Roger called up and said, "Have you ever seen a scenario?" And Bill said, "No." <laughs> he said, "Well, they usually run about 120 pages, and this is 240 pages, so you're like twice too long." So that was where I had to come in on the first thing because Bill hated the editor's work. Once it was, it was like. Not just cutting, bleeding, it was like cutting muscle <laughs> to, to edit his work. So I cut, helped cut it down and uh, went out to the story meeting with Roger and Princess Doll, this lady who did development, and uh, we had story meetings on it. And while we were out there, we were at Nate Niles, uh, it a delicatessen uh, in Beverly Hills. And an agent walks behind and Roger waves him over and says, this is your lucky day, Carrington's, and they don't have an agent. So we then acquired an agent who then, while we were still out interviewing, uh, working on Von Richthofen and Brown, uh, came up with an interview with Walter Seltzer to do what became a Mega Man. So the, and all of a sudden, having done a Mega Man, we became science fiction writers, although so we had never done it before. But Hollywood tends to want to categorize you rather quickly. So we then got various offers to do various science fiction projects after that.
4: What was it like when you were editing Bill's work? I mean, sometimes I love my editors, sometimes it feels like they're murdering my children. Oh, yes. Bill definitely felt that way, but <laughs> he, he, he left it to me. I say He didn't
3: take—we would argue more over his books, you know, when I'd edit something there. Uh,
4: he didn't take the movie writing seriously, so it didn't matter to him
3: too much uh, one
4: way or the other. How did you go about adapting I Am Legend for The Omega Man? it's a very short
3: story and it had vampires in it. And I didn't particularly want to use vampires. So I came up with the idea of biological warfare. Then Bill came up with the, the weird uh, contact lenses that were mirrors that gave your villain really spooky qualities. Then we had to stretch it out because it wasn't long enough to be a real movie. You know, a movie is a, is a novella, uh, not a short story. So we, uh, came up with the people who were young, the young people who weren't quite turned. And also we had to put in a love interest and it's like, because there wasn't any love interest in the short story. So we said, well, okay, when the last man on earth meets the last woman on earth, how could you make this a difficult romance? And so I was teaching in a black university at the time and I said, oh, we'll make her black. So, and we got this wonderful feisty actress uh, who played the role to perfection. And I believe we won the Beverly Hills AECP award for that year <laughs> because it was one of the first on screen black white romances, you know. So, uh, but we, we, we took the character of Charmond Huston's character and we sort of divided him down the middle between, and we did it symbolically with his apartment, with part of it was his science lab and part of it was humanity's function. So that was sort of filling my. Twining, you know <laughs> I did the science part to the humanities part um, but it was fun to do we always had fun because we lived in New Orleans at the time and they would fly us out for story meetings and put us up at a nice hotel and we go to a nice restaurant and come home and knock off our work you know and it was very simple it's 120 pages goodness well, later we got into doing soap opera where you're doing an hour a day five days a week 52 weeks a year that's writing. <laughs> That's exhausting. 220 pages is nothing. In fact, it was, we we said that once in an interview to a New Orleans paper and our agent said, oh, for God's sakes, they pay you a lot of money. Don't say that. Don't say this it's easy. And don't give them more than like 10 or 15 pages at a time because we back out of script. We literally, like when we did, uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, it was Planned of the Apes, the producer, insisted that we fly out with the pages every week. And I told Bill I was teaching. I said, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. He was in law school at the time. He'd given up his teaching position, back like to law school. So he said, well, I can t- catch an early morning flight because of the time difference. I can be in L.A., hand over the pages, and a producer uh, would take them and then say, go to lunch and come back. And Bill would come back, and he would look at it and say... Oh, yeah, they're fine. Okay, go back and keep going. But we would have written written the whole thing, and you'd take out like 10 or 15 pages. (laughs) It was Arthur Jacobs, who's the producer. His name finally came back to me. Poor guy. He was actually sick of the eight movies because at the end, as you notice, at the end of the second one, he blew up the earth because he didn't want to do any more sequels. And the studio told him, Well, we don't care if you blew up the earth. You figure it out. We want another sequel. (laughs) By the time we'd gotten to the fifth one with him, well, we only did the fifth one, but by the time he got to the fifth one, he was so sick of it, and he also died shortly afterwards of a heart attack, so he was not a well person, but it was a pretty weird experience of typical Hollywood excess paying for a first-class Delta flight out once a week (laughs) to hand over pages.
4: (laughs) I can't believe you guys were, well, Bill being in school and you teaching and balancing that with the the writing at the same time. I mean, some people that's their only job is to be the screenwriter.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm sure if they take it very seriously, it's, you know, it could be. Say <laughs> so we never took it too seriously. It was fun. You know, I've had, always had fun. The only time I didn't have fun was when we did general hospital. And that was because the producer was a pain in the neck, but uh, we always had fun doing it. So
4: what was your relationship like with Walter Seltzer?
3: He was very nice. Um, Chuck Heston had bought the rights to this movie uh, to make a band. And he had, um, oh, you know, like hands-on doing it. So we were over to his house and met him a couple of times and all. And he was very nice. Um, yeah, there was always sort of a pane of glass. You never felt like you got past that public person. But very nice. And um, we had we had a good time with it. Uh, it was not at all hard uh, working with them, uh, they did a polish after we turned in the script because they thought it needed more humor, and they put in some really stupid lines, which when we saw the movie, we cringed at. But basically, they did our our, our show, which you can't save everything you write because there was a tendency to. Even though that we never got, we always got written by credits. You know, the prime credits. Uh, sometimes they would mess around with it, like when we did Boxcar Bertha for Roger Corman. Martin Scarsese directed, it was the last one he directed before he got famous with Mean Streets. And uh, I don't know whether it was Roger or uh, whether it was uh, Scarsese, but it was supposed to be a feminist picture. In fact, Julie Carman, Roger's wife, was the one who had come up with the idea. And it's supposed to be a feminist picture. Car Bertha is the title. Well, they the way we played it was that she was the brains behind Paul, you know, that, uh, David Carradine would get himself in some pics and then Bertha would get him out of it. Well, they kept cutting out the ends of scenes where she wasn't the savior. It was just David Carradine's picture. You know, we never had any input in the production of any movie, except a little bit with, uh, but that was just an accident. Uh, they were filming in Ireland and Roger wanted some additional scenes so Bill said, oh, I could do that if you um, pair our way over. <laughs> so we got a free trip over just to be there, you know. But normally we'd give the script to the producer and never see it again until a year or two later. We'd go look at our local movie theater. So,
4: Well, I, I guess I should ask, what were your impressions when you finally saw The Omega Man? Were you happy with what they did other than the comedy bits?
3: Yeah, the comedy bits really made us cringe. Uh, like At one point there was a line about, told you have to, uh, you know, you have to leave, or I don't know what prompted it. But the line was, What without well, maybe a blue blanket? It's like, What? <laughs> Where did that come from? That's so stupid. But the the thing I guess that distressed us a little bit but we told Charlton Heston we were using the symbol of, of uh, the hero's blood saves humanity, you know, it's his, and it was like the blood of Christ. And so when he dies at the end, he knew he was dying like a Christ figure. Well, the trouble was. He handed up, you know, he died and he died and he died and he died. <laughs> you know, so, and other than that, it was, uh, it was, oh, and another thing that really irritated me was that the girl, uh, let's see, who was Rosalind uh, Cash, uh, his, his love interest, introduced herself as, there's a scene where he's he's uh, been captured and he's in a stadium and he's about to be, I don't know, crucified or killed or something. And suddenly the stadium lights come on. And Rosalind was the one who did it because she told him she had been an electrical engineering student at Berkeley. And she had wired the, you know, the generators or something to make the lights come on. I don't know. Uh, and they changed it to a guy because obviously a girl could not be an engineer. <laughs> you know? And that really irritated me, you know, because i I was an engineer, I'd worked in the industry, you know, so but other than those two things uh was or three things with this stupid humor uh, it was it was a pretty good production,
4: well, that would have been the perfect time for it too i mean it, like the feminist revolution was ongoing at that point,
3: uh well, Hollywood did not recognize that at the time, They <laughs> just beginning to recognize females. <laughs>
4: Moving on to uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, you said that it wasn't necessarily the the easiest thing, that Jacobs wasn't necessarily that into it at the time. It must have been kind of strange, because you're almost written into a corner with something like that, because of the way that time is cyclical. Did you have to go back and watch all the original movies and then try to figure out where yours would fit in?
3: Well, we did, because we had never seen them, (laughs) so... When he brought us out, he set us up to, you know, screen the movies and we saw them. Mostly, I got the idea from we were trying to think of, well, the uh, writer up to that point, Paul Dean, I believe it was, had been, had done the other four scripts and he had had a nervous breakdown or something because he had started a fifth script and he had the uh, apes suddenly going to like a corrupt Roman court. You know, Caesar was like Caesar, you know, like... <laughs> a Roman emperor. And it was like, what? You know, they just gotten their freedom. How did you get there? So I was talking to my hairdresser, who was a great fan of the apes. And I said, well, what is it you like about these movies? And he said, well, the apes have such innocence. And so that hit me then, you know, okay. So we did a Cain and Abel story. We did the first ape killing an ape. And then some young man, I can't remember his name, he did a uh, PhD dissertation on it, and then later published it as a book. And I met it one time when I was out there did a Blu-ray version of uh, of the ape movies, and uh, they wanted to talk to me about it, and he was there. So nice young man, but he he had this theory that it was all about racial politics of the time, and I said, well, it may have been, you know, in Paul Dean's mind, and. Certainly, that was you know uh, evident in the 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 way the different quality of the apes behaved and everything. But I said we were doing Cain and Abel. And he he just didn't really want to hear that because it didn't fit into his PhD dissertation. <laughs> so, but uh, but it was a you he, he got a. I said well I was teaching at a black university at the time, so I'm sure some of that came in. So he he jumped on that, you know, thought that was important in his interpretation of the film.
4: <laughs> well, there's definitely a lot of racial politics in the arena as well. Oh, my goodness, you saw the arena? It's been a while, but yeah. I mean, I, I would watch anything with Pam Gur in it. <laughs> it's funny. I'm sitting here
3: looking at a poster, and it's retitled Naked Warriors. <laughs> These are two almost nude women fighting. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was funny because, yeah, that was another one that they... Totally changed the ending of uh the beginning it was, was supposed to be in the arena you know uh of um, and they turned it into just right at the end. I mean, there was no way to you can escape the Roman Empire it stretched from Persia to uh Brittany at the time, and uh, yet they had them, you know running through this all escape thing at the end, so uh, that didn't make too much sense but what the heck it was the second thing we wrote, and uh, it was funny because when you write a movie, in the old days, nowadays, everything is on tape so you can see it, but uh, you'd be in a movie and you'd see it, and it'd go away, and you'd never have a chance to see it again. Well, one time, the the we saw the arena was coming on television or something, and so we rushed home to see it. This was like years after having seen it, and and we'd, think we were going to be thrilled by it, and it's like, it's so... Canty. <laughs> I mean, we were just hilarious. We thought it was hilarious. It wasn't meant to be that way, but it was. <laughs> you know, so.
4: What was your experience like working on Killer Bees? Oh, yeah,
3: that was a good, that has a backstory is that it has nothing to do with writing it at all. We got a call, um, we were sitting here in New Orleans and we got a call from the producer who set up by our agent and he said, you know, how Hitchcock's birds, I want something like that with bees. And that, again, is where my science background came in because I knew I had been reading about the killer bees that had come from Africa into South America. They were making their way you know. up. So uh, that gave us the theme part. But we, I remember sitting on the extension phone in the bedroom. See, we have an old, an old house that was built in 1915. And when we renovated it, we took all the old screens off, thinking, well, we're always going to use air conditioning. Well, keep the windows closed. Well, we found that. Air conditioning was $1,000 a month, so we tended to keep the windows open when it could. Well, we have big tree roaches in New Orleans, big, you know, like inch and a half roaches. that fly through the air at night. And it used to be that when I'd come up to the bedroom at night and there'd be one on the ceiling, I'd go into this, oh, Bill, there's a roach on the ceiling, you gotta come kill it, thing, you know. But I'm sitting there talking to the producer on Killer Bees. And a roach flies in the window and lands in my hair. <laughs> I just I knock it to the floor and I stomp on it and I don't miss a beat with what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, so I decided this was a total affectation on my part, you know. <laughs> but that was a, that was a, that was our first and only uh, TV movie, and uh, it was an interesting experience. Except at the end, um, I had visualized you go up into the attic and the whole attic is supposed to be a hive and I had seen it in visually like a movie you know but when you're looking at it on a little TV screen it looked eh, you know (laughs) it it wasn't the climax that I expected because I was thinking movie instead of TV you know but that was that was pretty well done it was they had wanted to use um, oh who was another actress Betty Davis I think but she was allergic to bees So they used Gloria Swanson
4: instead. (laughs) Yeah, pretty remarkable cast and just remarkable production all around. I mean, that was one of Curtis Harrington's first films, If Memory Serves. It was an
3: interesting experience because all of our interchange is just about with the people, the producers were on the phone uh, as opposed to, you know, it was a... It's much cheaper budget than a um, um, movie movie, you know. So uh, we didn't get to – we did fly out, I think, once, but uh, not – we didn't – we mostly did fun conferences about it. And I remember one time there was saying, well, we had a scene where the heroine comes in and the family are waiting on her for dinner. And so the producer on the phone says, oh – they had two of them said, oh – let's let's have them seated. And so she has to walk in and they're already seated having dinner. And I said, no, no, that that would never happen. That would be rude. You wouldn't do that to a guest. And so he says to his uh, other producer, he says, is that rude? (laughs) Yeah, that's rude. (laughs) So so they were still standing waiting when she came down. (laughs) But I was a little disappointed because I expected – the grapevines to show up better than they did. But when they shot it, they were still just these little scrubby things, you know? So it was sort of visually disappointing too.
4: (laughs) It sounds like you and Bill didn't necessarily take this whole Hollywood thing very seriously at all. Oh, no. Did you ever even think about like moving out there?
3: Well, we did move out, but that was because we got a job where we had to be there. We did a number of movies and then we got a call from Procter Gamble through our agent. In fact, our agent called us up and said, uh, Bill, he said, is the, he was on the phone with him, Bill, is the uh, prestige of doing feature films important to you? And said, well, hell no. He said, well, there is this other art farm and it pays very well, but it's very low prestige. And Bill put his hand on the phone and looked at me and said, honey, I think Rick wants us to do porn. <laughs> But it was soap opera. (laughs) So so, uh, we began doing soap opera, but again, we were doing it from New Orleans. And we would fly to New York um, for a story meeting. And uh, that was maybe every two months or or a little more frequently. And you'd project what you're going to do because traditionally soap opera things, you know, you have long story arcs of six months or so and uh, go home and do it. And it was hard work uh, because you're doing As I said, 52 weeks a year with no vacations and no reruns. But um, you paid, see, when you do a movie, you're paid well a script, but you do one movie a year, maybe, you know, so you're not getting a lot of money from it. Whereas with the soap opera, you're getting a lot of money because there's just so many scripts. So um, we did uh, a number of soap opera things, and then we were out of a job, and then our agent set us up to do. An interview to do Superior Court, which is a strip show. A strip show is a syndicated show that's on five days a week. This has nothing to do with stripping. <laughs> it was a court show by the people who did People's Court, but they wanted a scripted, and that's unscripted, uh, but they wanted to do a scripted show where you found interesting cases and did them, but you did a, a different case every day. To do that much story, we sort of had to be there. So we went out for a year. Uh, And rented and did that for a year and uh, then at the end of the year I told Bill that the uh, IRS will let you take off your living expenses living away from home for a year but not more than that so we should buy but we didn't sell a New Orleans house we just bought intending to you know move out there until the job was done and then come back to New Orleans but we found a wonderful place to buy it was 26 acres in the Malibu Hills that had been foreclosed because the guy had been killed by a SWAT team because they thought he was a drug dealer. And so it had fallen into bankruptcy. And so we were able to get it for a very good price. So we decided that uh, we liked it so much that we would move out there. And we did Superior Court for a total of three years. And then Bill passed away from a heart attack. And there I was with this big property in Malibu. But I decided to stay and uh, sell the New Orleans property instead. I wound up living out there for about 21 years before I retired and came back here.
4: What were you doing in the meantime?
3: I continued working. I did some soap opera. And uh, then I did, um, uh, for 11 seasons, I did Real World for MTV. You know, Real World.
4: Oh, yeah. That was a huge, huge impact on uh, people my generation.
3: Yeah. Well, I started with the ninth season and I did uh, from Seattle to Denver. That was uh, very interesting to do because that was that was my forte and that I didn't have to write dialogue. Um, I can write dialogue, but Bill said I always wrote dialogue like everyone was a Rice graduate. <laughs> so. In the real world, the kids are, at least the way we shot it, uh, we just put cameras on them 24-7 for about three or four months it was up to me to find the scenes that made stories. So they had their own voices. So I didn't have to dialogue. I just had to find the story arcs. And that was very interesting. We'd do uh, 39 episodes. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, that was Superior Court. We'd do uh, 24 episodes, except sometimes we'd have more material and the uh, do it uh, stretch it out a few more episodes but you always look for like an episode for each an arc for each episode but then you look for an arcs for the whole season then hopefully someone learns something from being on the show because people would say oh well do you mind don't you miss college teaching and I said well I did feel like I had a good impact because I put in 10 years uh, teaching at a black university and it really helped get their science program funded better it's now Xavier University now sends more uh, black kids to medical school than any you know, other university in America so they have a strong science program but I said I felt like when I got to doing television that my audience just got bigger you know the the kids um, people that I can affect particularly with the real world because your audience is the younger people uh, that you can communicate to them in a way that um, you can't do in a classroom you know we, I mean we had alcoholic stories we had boyfriend abuse stories Uh, we had uh, anorexic stories Uh, we had even a girl who was a cutter Uh, we didn't know that she was and when we put her on the cast but uh, she turned out to be so uh, you could do some really interesting things uh, but you weren't making up the stories you weren't like a a grown-up making up teenage
4: stories they were living their stories and you were just telling them for them that must have been such a, a change for you, or did the soap operas kind of help you get into that mindset?
3: Yeah, it was actually the producers of the show were Mary Ellis Junum and um, John Murray. I <laughs> couldn't pull up his first name. Uh, Mary Ellis had been the producer on our first soap opera, which is how I wound up being the writer or the I was a co-executive producer, actually was my title, but I was in charge of the story for Real World when I was there, because she knew me and knew I could do story. They, the story was that MTV wanted to do a soap opera and they priced it out for them and they said, well, we can't, can't afford it. Uh, you know, they approached John Mary Ellis and John's background was in the news and Mary Ellis was in uh, soap opera, so they priced it out for them like you got to have writers, you got to have sets, and you got to have Uh, editors and you know actors and all this money and they're expensive to produce that's why they sort of died off you know they're expensive to produce and uh, so MTV said well we can't afford that so they then thought of the idea of well let's try a reality soap opera and they didn't know if it would work so they did a pilot show in New York with I think it was just six at that time uh, cast members and they said, as soon as they put them together, it never went on air. It was just a pilot. But they said, as soon as they put them together, it worked. You know, it, it, they do. Was, this was the concept that was going to work. But then they had trouble. Uh, contr- you'd have like 3,500 hours of tape by the time you film 24-7 for two or three cameras uh, for that long of, you know, three months or so. Uh, they had trouble mastering the material. And the first eight seasons, they were going crazy because the story departments Well, like the eighth season uh, before I took over, the whole entire story department resigned because it was so overworked and so uh, upset. And uh, I came in and was able to organize it in a way that I was in control of the material. We had bloggers, uh, little minions uh, who are film school graduates who would sit and look at each tape and they do a computer entry a program and a program that for each minute so you can, call, editors can go back and find something you know and the, the story department had not been using these tapes I mean these uh, computer logs because they said they weren't detailed enough and they weren't fast enough and all and so I told Mary Ellis I said well we just have to get them done faster and, and just make them put something down for every minute and they'll be detailed enough I so I got where I would read the logs then I would pull out scenes and save them that looked like it might be interesting. And after I'd saved enough scenes in my head, I knew I had a story that I would lay it out and I'd have one of my uh, assistant um, story editors um, patched together on the computer a rough cut of the show. And that way I was in control of the material, which no one had ever been mentally in control of it before. It was just too much material, you know. And the, the writers were trying to look at the tapes and remember the tapes and then generate stories from them, and they just couldn't do it. It was just too overwhelming. So they they were absolutely amazed. John and Mary Ellis were, you know, that I could come in and, and organize it like that so that it, it worked, and we were getting great ratings. And so I did it for eleven seasons until I decided to retire. So it was just it was a lot
4: of fun, actually. When you're writing, either helping to write a screenplay or writing for uh, soap operas, how are you keeping that kind of stuff organized? I know some people use like three-by-five cards, but when it comes to like a soap opera where you have that whole season-long story arc, how are you kind of mapping that out? There's sort of three
3: levels. There's the meeting level where you meet, uh, usually with the producers, and in Procter and Gamble's case, uh, they have... Uh, a Procter and Gamble representative there, and then uh, the advertising agency person was there, and you'd pitch a story arc. Uh, and I, personally, when I did it, I got a roll of like butcher paper, and I would I would lay it out so that I knew because I wanted something to happen every week. You know, even though so, so to most people. The soap operas just never, nothing ever seems to happen. A lot's happening. You have to keep it. You have to, you know, have your stories going. You have to do uh, when you're doing an hour show. You have to do uh, pretty much three stories a day. You cut from one to the other, and so I would lay it out. And the first story I meeting I went to, I pinned this up on the wall, and they were all aghast because well, you just can't predict it like that. You know, Uh, it it ties. If you are down too much. You have to be responsive to what's on air. So, uh, Gail Kobe, who had who was a writer development person, found us. Told us she said, "Now she said I'm just going to tell you, just, just put the paper away." And she said, "You do that at home. Just don't bring it to the meeting." <laughs> so, so that's how it. So you so you do a projection. It's a long term story projection, and then you'd come home, and then we would do. And I did. This was my job to do the breakdowns, which is you lay out for five scripts in a row of a week uh, exactly what the scenes are going to be. And those I did do uh, three by five cards because then you want to shuffle them because you can't, they're all, it's like writing a sonnet. You've got so many restrictions. You have actors who have guarantees. You have can't put up too many sets. You have a limited number of sets and you can't change the sets from one day to the next entirely because it costs too much money to put them up and take them down. There are all these restrictions that you have to, keep in mind while telling the story, you know, those I would do on three by five cards. And then I would do uh, what's called a breakdown. And then I'd give each breakdown to a writer and Bill would do usually three scripts. And we had other writers uh, working for us that they would do another two of those. And then we'd get the scripts back and then I'd edit them for continuity and send them in. And this was week after week after week after week. (laughs) Really exhausting. <laughs> People don't appreciate it because it's a feminine art form, you know. Is like anything that women are attached to, like nursing and teaching, or or whatever, or soap opera, because it's mostly feminine. Uh, it gets degraded, But for the actor, think how hard it is for an actor to be given a you know a an hour script in which they have you know a huge number of lines, and they get it, and they have to. Master it. They have to block it. They have to tape it all in one day. It's just incredible that they can do it.
4: No, I always admire the amount of skill that it takes for the people behind the scenes and the people in front of the camera to be able to just get that going and keep that momentum up just day after day.
3: Yeah, and we had the director is is doing live editing on three cameras. He's cutting the cameras. You don't go back and edit the soap opera. You edit it online like that as you're doing it. You know so. It was it was like watching, a, well, you see it in sports, you know, when you're doing a live sports show, you're cutting from camera to camera. But mostly, you don't do that with drama. Mostly, you film the darn stuff and then edit it, you know. But uh, this was a totally different uh, way of doing it. And then when you got into reality, television is a totally different way of doing it because you have all this footage and no script at all. <laughs> so you, have, you have to impose the script on the footage, as it were.
4: Can you tell me about the uh, New Orleans Mysteries? When did those come about?
3: Bill was a writer, and he had always had modest success in uh, publishing his books until he wrote one called Shad, which is absolutely a wonderful book. Um, but it was huge. It was a strange mixture of, um, it was almost comedic. It, it, the structure is Don Giovanni. <laughs> And anyway, he did this wonderful manuscript, and his publisher was – his editor was so excited about it. I mean, his agent was so excited about it that she thought she'd have an auction on it. Well, it put out for auction, and no one was interested in it. And he just could not sell it, could not sell it, could not sell it. And then finally, uh, a small publishing house bought it printed it and then they went bankrupt. So it sat in a warehouse and it never really got distributed. I mean, it was just terrible. So Bill was so disappointed with this book that he said, well, damn, I'm just going to write something that's, uh, you know, this, this, popular fiction or whatever. So he had always had in mind, uh, a scene where a hero walks in the bar and everyone in the bar is dead. And so I said, well, let me think about it. So I come up with a plot and we did the plot and, uh, send it in, and uh, his agent immediately gets it not only published in America, but she took it to the Berlin Film Festival and sold it internationally. We have Japanese editions and Swedish editions, so uh, it's not that it became like a monster success, but it was a modest success, you know, so uh, we did, uh, we were working on the 4th of that when Bill passed away with his heart attack, so I finished the 4th. And then I did a fifth and a sixth after that. But they were just done in between times uh, uh, when we would, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be between movies or, or soap operas. Because even soap operas, we we changed. We didn't voluntarily necessarily, but uh, we did voluntarily. We left Search for Tomorrow voluntarily to start our own show, Texas. But then Fred Silverman, after it wasn't happy with the ratings on Texas, so he fired us. Only time in my life I was ever fired. That was so upsetting. took me two years to get over it. But generally, we would do a soap opera for a period of time, you know, maybe a year or two, and that would be it, because it's just such hard work. You sort of get tired of it. Uh, So in between jobs was when we were doing the the Mystery series. They were just Something again, something we were having fun with. You know, it's fun to do it because, to me, Bill said he would never write a book he knew the end of. But on the other way around, when I do a mystery story, I have to plot it all the way through so that you can appropriately, you know, get you from A to Z, as it were. But he he was fine with following my outlines. He just that wasn't how he wrote his serious books. He he discovered his books as he wrote them.
4: So, what was that that relationship like when you guys were writing? I mean, was he the one sitting behind the typewriter, or and you're giving the ideas, or are you switching off? I mean, how did that go?
3: Now, we'd usually the idea part. We would usually go out to dinner. at Bill loved a local steak restaurant called Charlie's, and have a bottle of old policelli, <laughs> which is a cheap red wine, and uh, then throw around ideas because it's if you're trying to create. Some, something, don't self-censor, you know. He's like, what if, what if, what if, even if it's stupid, what if, what if? And uh, then I would come home because I could remember all these what ifs in my head and do some sort of story outline, which we would discuss, and I would firm up the detailed outline of the of the script or whatever. And then generally Bill would uh, do the dialogue of the script, and he was wonderful wonderfully creating character through dialogue. He could do wonderful voices for people. You know? We each sort of played to our own strength. You know, mine was the storytelling and his was the, the the writing.
4: Was it intimidating when you came to the fifth book and had to do it on your own?
3: No. I picked up his style because uh, he had already set a style. Uh, well, I had to finish the fourth, actually. But um, when I did the his, uh a friend of mine said, you know, I would never have thought a woman read that book. You <laughs> know, I said, "Well, I picked up Bill's style. It was that was my style per se." So, uh, but um, no, it wasn't intimidating. I'd done it too long to be intimidated by it.
4: Are you still writing?
3: Not too much. I did a sort of a biography that I've never published. But but I've, and I'm helping friends. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Jenny Bell Sinclair. She was a TV reporter who married a guy who was in Angola he had been on death row but got his sentence commuted to life and uh, he spent the next 25 years trying to get him out of prison so uh, she's is doing her biography and uh, I was helping her edit it recently because she's a good writer but she had written for tv so she only wrote she wrote dynamically but she, her organization was pretty weak because she wasn't used to doing any long farm stuff you know so I helped her uh, by editing uh, her book for her. So that's kind sort of fun. And my son-in-law is also doing his memoirs. He was uh, a hippie. Uh, he went to Vietnam twice. Uh, had two tours of duty in Vietnam, and then uh, came back the hippie uh, president of the student body at LSU. <laughs> so back in the '70s. So that was uh, he had a very, very interesting life. Became a public defender. I enjoy helping people do their lives because uh, they, people have such stories. And generally, you don't get to know people. You know, you have cocktail conversations about what movie you've seen and what restaurants you've been to. But when people have really interesting stories when they get down to it,
4: where's the best place for people to pick up your books and Bill's books?
3: Uh, I have a website, com, that lists. Uh, our mystery stories, and then separately this uh, Bill's serious work. And I was able to bring all of his older books back into print that way. Amazon has a um, a side branch uh, CreateSpace, and they uh, if you send them a digital manuscript, uh, they quote publish it, in that they offer it through Amazon, and they don't print them until it's ordered. So the price is really quite cheap. So all of his books are in print, and I also did Collected uh, always collected poetry, and uh, the uh, collected um, short stories, and then uh, another young man uh, did uh, a collection of his essays recently. So all of his work is now back available in print, which is good.
4: Well, I'd love to read your bio if you ever consider putting that out too. Oh well,
3: I was just from the family. I haven't actually published it yet. I gave it to my son who helped me. Put the ones on Amazon, and he's been sitting on it for years. So I think he's waiting for me to die to publish it.
4: Can hand it out at the funeral. <laughs> Joyce, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Oh, good. Well, I'm, well, in, if I can help you in any way further, you know, let me know because I'm I'm retired,
3: so I'm really doing. I work with the Legal Women Voters. I was a state president for two years, but I'm not the president anymore, so I'm not uh, overly occupied with anything to do. So I'd be happy happy to help you if anything comes up. I'm not I'm not infected I'm not infected
6: please
2: nothing happened the way it was supposed to happen six billion people on earth when the infection hit I'm a survivor living in New York City I will be at the South Street seaport every day at midday when the sun is highest in the sky
0: Don't just push him around. Eat eat him. I'm not playing. Four. Morning, Hank. Midway through the G's.
4: and we were talking about the Omega Man and we're going to have to talk about I Am Legend, guys. I'm sorry. Oh, but gosh. All right. I Am Legend comes out in 2007 and this is one of those projects that was kicking around since the mid-90s. There were two scripts that were floating around, one by John Logan, one by Mark Protosevich. And those scripts... Wow. They are fantastic. I have to say both of those individually. And I'm very curious as far as the evolution of these scripts, because Protosevich in 96, he writes a script and he takes the creatures away from being the cultist family that we've seen away from being kind of more the shambling zombies and puts them more into the more of what we're going to kind of see in I Am Legend more of the you know really hyper killer kind of creatures more like those 28 days later type of zombies that we're going to see and he calls them hemocytes and then it's interesting because in Logan's script that has a date of I want to say 97 he also refers to the creatures as, as hemocytes so I don't know if it is one of those things where two writers got the same assignment and they kind of went from there or if it was protosevich to logan back to protosevich or how that worked and spoiler alert i will hopefully be talking to protosevich and we'll have an interview in here that i have yet to record so i'm very curious if he'll be able to shed any light on that but again we take these same blocks that we've seen in these other movies and we are rearranging them so is it do we have a dog? Do we have the mystery of what happened to his family? Do we have Courtman in here? What are these creatures like? And so we mix and match those kind of things through the true scripts. And again, both of these are fantastic. Really enjoyed them. And then the project goes into turnaround. I think at one point it was supposed to be Ridley Scott directing with possibly Arnold Schwarzenegger as, as Neville.
5: Could have been fant- Can you imagine Neville going around with staking vampires going, I'm dead serious.
4: You got the, you got the point. It would have been really good. It's interesting too, because when we talked on this show about, um, 12 Monkeys, 12 Monkeys was one of the movies that came out in the wake of the Ebola explosion over in Africa. And, uh, there was the, the article, The Hot Zone, and then there was the book of The Hot Zone. I think the book of The Hot Zone came out in 84, and then there was a real rush again. Ridley Scott was slated to direct the movie version of The Hot Zone, which only now is available, I think, as a miniseries. I can't remember what channel or streaming platform that's available on, but again, maybe kind of too little too late. Who knows? But yeah, so we had all of these disease movies coming out or being informed by this stuff, and this would have been yet another entry in that, but then it gets delayed for almost 10 years or over 10 years. And then we finally get what we ended up getting. I even read a script from 2005, which had Akiva Goldsman's name on it. And I'm not a big fan of Goldsman, but even that script from December 8th, 2005 is better than what we ended up getting. I don't know who to lay the blame for whose feet I should, should lay this blame for because the, I am legend 2000 film 2007 film I am not a big fan of this film.
1: I went and watched it for the first time for the this show, and I think my review on Letterboxd was the things I do for the projection booth. But to be honest with you, I mean, yeah, okay, sure, I think we agree. It's not a great film, but it was nowhere near the disaster that I was um, fearing it was going to be. But I, I think most of my problems with it were – um I guess, more visual, the whole notion. I'm not a big fan of CGI-laden, big blockbuster-type films. The whole notion of the creatures in uh, I Am Legend, they they'd mutated so much. They were not the least bit human. They roared with the strength of a thousand amplifiers. It just, that none of that made any sense to me. For whatever other problems, the earlier films had had with the characterization of Robert Neville, you felt some level of sympathy for them. I mean, maybe more with Vincent Price and Charlton Heston, but you felt something for them. And really, Will Smith's character in this, you you see him lose his wife and daughter and you're supposed to feel something bad for him. And I just, I'm sorry to sound like an asshole, but I never do. And that's a problem. I'm not sure if that's a problem with the script, Or it's a problem with the direction. Yeah, I just feel nothing for him. And um, it's, it's shot to me competently, but I never feel involved in the story. And it's a real shame because, you know, I love everything else related to the stories of Robert Neville, the book and the other two films.
5: I share your complete lack of empathy with Will Smith in this role. I just felt nothing. In fact, it really annoyed me. And I was thinking, as I was watching *I Am Legend*, the 2007 film, who would I who would I want to hang out with more? Charlton in his in his apartment with the crushed velvet and the dinner and the music and the weird swinger two way screen, or clean living, all round good guy Bob Marley listening, Neville in in the 2000s. I know who, I'd be with Chuck. You know, it'd be much more entertaining. We could play chess. We could hang out. We could talk about things. We could go cruising. He's such a boring character and there's no, I mean, I suppose there's a sense of edge to him, to to Will Smith's performance, but there's no, there's something missing at the core of this film. Um, There's no, it's just not dramatic. There's nothing driving it. The one thing I did like, I, I had seen I Am Legend a long time ago when it first came out. I think because I thought, oh, great, you know, a a remake of the Amiga Man or a remake of the the I Am Legend book, this would be great. Of course, I was very disappointed. And much like you, Morris, I sacrificed two hours of my life for Mike (laughs) and the Projection Booth that I will never get back watching I Am Legend again for this podcast. I did quite like the depiction of New York. CGI-laden as it is, this I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, you know, the fact that he basically shoots golf balls off that massive mothballed bomber, I thought that was quite interesting. These, all these huge battleships sort of rotting in the harbour, the fact that New York is full of, of, of wild animals, including mountain lions, I quite like that. But, yeah, there's, there's very little I liked in this film. And like you, I just felt no empathy for Will Smith's character.
4: It's tough when you feel more empathy for the dog than you do for Will Smith. And when the dog dies in the movie, the movie's pretty much over for me. I don't care about anything after that. And there's one moment in it that just seems to me to be so
1: completely illogical. We see early on him going into a video library and he's talking to the dummies, you know, pretty much like Charlton Heston is talking to himself and maybe keeps him with some level of sanity, but there's that moment where he sees a dummy in at the end of a street. Now he's previously gone and set up traps to capture these creatures, hemisites, whatever you want to call them. And they do the same to capture him. And these creatures now correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that all they are, are noise and violence and slobbering, and they have no level of intelligence. At least there's been no indication to that point, but how does a creature that really just lives to eat and to kill set up a sophisticated trap like that? It just seemed like one glaring big logical fallacy in, in the film. I mean I can, I can forgive logical problems with films, you know, but in a film where you' don't, you don't feel anything for the main character and there
4: are holes in the plot, then yeah it's not
1: doing a great job.
4: Well, that's the thing that they don't manage to bring out in this film, is that there is a relationship between the woman creature that he ends up taking and the male creature that, when he comes out into the sun and is burning himself and screaming at Neville, then it becomes a revenge story from his point of view. And he's the guy who's who sets up the trap and does all of these things. He basically sets up the exact same trap that we see Will Smith setting up. But we don't necessarily get that, and Smith is too dumb to realize that there is a relationship there, and he says in his journal, like, oh, yeah, there's a weird thing that happened. This creature came out in the sunlight and was burning himself. Oh, that's kind of weird. And he never puts two and two together. And it's just like, so he thinks of these things as completely mindless and only wants to use them for their blood and to try to find a cure. Again, in the 2005 script, in that one, he's really trying to find a cure because his wife and daughter have turned and are basically serving the leader of the hemocytes, and he abuses them like a bad stepfather kind of a creature. And so he's like, okay, I want to get them, and I want to save them, and do this kind of stuff. I'll figure out what's going on. And he goes through all these test subjects, and we do get a shot in I Am Legend 2007 of all of the previous subjects that he has worked on and so again kind of saying like oh yeah he is the knight he goes through and murders all of these creatures and he's the stuff of their their nightmares or daymares i suppose but again it's just so like thrown away there's so many moments in this 2007 movie that we get through just little flashes of like the cover of Time magazine that's on his refrigerator or a headline inside of a you know a, a place that he happens to go into, it's just really poor storytelling.
5: To hearken back to the original themes in the book, there is that sense that the hemocytes are evolving. Into, I mean, as you say, I mean he's, he's not. He, there's no. There's no sense. He's not getting that. He's not realizing that there is a sense that they are evolving into something else, and that they act They actually have some sort of community, um, and that they're evolving into something else. But yes, it's a fairly. It's a fairly minor highlight in an otherwise very lackluster script, I think. And um, yeah, I'll just go back to how uninspiring Will Smith is. I quite like Will Smith. Some of his stuff he's done, but he's very. His all-round clean American good guy image in this film is really sort of boring. And can we just say about the very end when um, who is it? Uh, Alicia Brager and Charlie Tahan, who play Anna and Ethan, who are the the woman and the young boy, who are sort of then you know so sort of st- stumble into Neville's orbit and then escape when he's he's a flat sort of gets um. Attacked by the hemocytes and they and and they escape with, I think, some some serum that, that that Neville's made. Is that right? Yeah. And then they go on this 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 trip, and then they seem to cross over into The Handmaid's Tale, and and end up in this weird sort of rural
4: Christian sort of walled gated community. It looks like. Welcome, welcome to the future of America. Yeah. Well, that's in one version of the ending. And the other version of the ending is we have this very heavy-handed butterfly imagery that goes throughout this whole thing. We have his daughter in the back seat saying, Dad, look, a butterfly. And she does that again when he he, uh, puts her on the helicopter and she's doing this thing with her hands like, look, a butterfly. And then when he and Sam, the dog, are going through the cornfield, we get a shot of a CGI butterfly that's flying around. And I know somebody's going to correct me and tell me all about the insect wrangling that happened on this movie. That seems to be my thing. If I call something CGI, somebody has to prove me wrong that it wasn't a CGI thing. But anyway, so yeah, at the end, the head hemocyte, they are inside of the um, that little room with the glass, which it seems to be unbreakable glass. Good thing that he put that in there. And the hemocyte is just pounding against the the glass so much that it starts to shatter and it shatters into an image of a butterfly. And then he looks down at the woman that he's got and she's got a butterfly tattoo. And he's like, oh, okay, I understand. He wheels the body out of that containment unit the main hemocyte comes up to him and is sniffing him and all this kind of stuff, and he takes the body and goes away, and Neville basically apologizes when he sees all of those pictures of the other people that this guy probably knew that Neville has kidnapped, and then the three of them drive off, and we still get the Anna voiceover, but it's a little bit different, and we don't get that Handmaid's tail colony that we see. We basically get her saying...
6: My name is Anna Montes. There are other survivors. I'm traveling with Dr. Robert Neville and a boy named Ethan. We're heading north on Route 17 to Bethel, Vermont. Keep your radio on. Listen for our broadcasts. You are not alone. There is hope. Keep listening. You are
4: not alone. The happy ending versus the not happy ending and the butterfly imagery and all this, it was just a little heavy handed with that. I don't understand why Neville is broadcasting, come to me. I have food, I have shelter, all this stuff. When we see all of the bridges being destroyed for getting into New York, we see the tunnel, we hear about the tunnels getting blocked. Why is he broadcasting this thing and saying, "Come on over to Manhattan. This basically impenetrable <laughs> island at
1: this point. Swim the Hudson, I don't know.
4: Sure. Find a fucking boat and come on over to me. And then you and I we can watch Shrek together and I'll repeat all the lines."
5: I oh, know it's it really is, please put me in Neville's flat.
4: <laughs> in, in I'll, I'll have- would you rather see woodstock or shrek a thousand times
5: i would i would happily cook dinner for you know charlton heston as he comes home from mutant hunting every day how was your day chuck yeah good move he wouldn't tell
4: you that he was saving that bacon huh <laughs> that's
5: right that's right you're definitely right that given that the and actually the only Aspect of I Am Legend. The only scene I felt genuine suspense for was when the dog gets lost in that building, and you are trying to you think, "I'll oh, get the dog out, get the dog out, get the dog out." The dog is actually the main character, really, in some respects of this of I Am Legend. It's that it's that lackluster.
1: But that's a Hollywood trope, isn't it? You want to get that awe factor? Put a dog in,
4: yeah.
5: It would have been so much better with Arnold
4: Schwarzenegger
5: on a huge Harley Davidson tooling round. Oh, yeah, fantastic.
4: The thing that I really appreciated about I Am Legend 2007 was just the amazing job that Emma Thompson, one of the most amazing actresses of our time, that she just gives such a terrific performance for all of about 10 seconds, and then we never see her again.
1: Uh, she's as Dr. Crip.
4: And it, so she's the one who fucks the world, and then it's up to the to the man to unfuck the world and come up with the serum, which, again, I find a little troubling in this movie. The
5: plague has been caused by Emma Thompson. The doctor's one of one of her cures, isn't it? Technophobia again. So yeah, the less
4: said about I Am Legend two thousand and seven, I think the better.
5: I'm just trying. I'm struggling. I've got. I'm looking at my half a page of notes on it, and I just can't. <laughs> I can't really dredge up. Anything? Um, oh, I feel like I feel like that scene in Ed Wood where they're looking
4: at the review of the film. The costumes, yes, the costumes were very realistic. Yeah, you can't say that much about the CG. Oh my god, <laughs> that's right. That's as right. soon as we see those shitty CG deer oh my god, that was just nasty. And it's like, okay, are you trying to prepare us for the bad CG of the vampires later on? Because they look absolutely terrible. They are some of the worst CG creatures I've seen in a long time. Doing my Ed Wood thing here, it's nowhere near as bad
1: as the CG at the end of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull or whatever that last one was called. That was. I mean, I I haven't seen a ton of films with that original incarnation of CGI or whatever it was, but that was, for me, the shittiest thing I think I've ever seen. Oh, and the CG.
4: Brought to you by the same guy who brought you fucking Jurassic Park 97? I mean, what the fuck, man? How can you go from one to... uh, Sorry, I'm going to get off that soapbox. One other thing
1: I think that Possibly is worth sort of mentioning about this film because we were talking before in the earlier films about the religious iconography, and they thought, "Oh, hang on, there's religious iconography in the previous versions of the film in the book." I guess we have to include a little bit of that here. So this is another film about science versus faith, and you know he's he's like a a dead man, but what happens? The light shines almost like uh, Jake seeing the light in the Blues Brothers over the James Brown church. And he's rescued by Anna, and she has his cross dangling in her car. And, I mean, I don't think that they make a big thing. He doesn't die in a cross-like pose like uh, Chuck and Vincent do, but they definitely – it seemed to me like it was something that they just had to tick off a checklist. Oh, yeah, we better include that in because it was in the other films.
4: I think the funniest thing for me was just how how they wanted to go for – like the elbow nudge kind of thing. When Smith is walking around New York City in the background on one of the marquees, cause he's in times square is a big poster for Batman versus Superman, which at the time that this was made seemed like it was never going to happen. And at one point, Akiva Goldman, that was his, project, like he rewrote that script for one of the last incarnations. Again, a terrible rewrite that he ends up doing. That's why I don't trust Kevin Goldsman, is that he, it seems like whenever he comes in and does one of the final rewrites on a project, it ends up shitty. But even his shitty rewrite of this in 2005 was better than what we ended up with in 2007. So again, I don't know if this is the director, if this is another producer thing, what's going on, but why was this movie so bad? It's an
5: interesting insight into Hollywood, though. I mean, what what I don't I don't, I don't have the insight, but I mean, I'm I'm asking about an insight into Hollywood, the, the inertia that put that 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 pushes these films on, a film that's clearly not not really speaking to, as you say, it could have been speaking to that whole trope about you know unleashed contagions in the '90s that happened, but it's not. It's not feeding into any sort of political greater political commentary like, in its own ham-fisted way, the Amiga Man is. It doesn't speak to any sort of themes of the, the Cold War or, the, or religion like The uh, Last Man on Earth is. It, it's a terrible script. It's a terrible film. It doesn't really work. Uh, why didn't someone just – why didn't someone – say, whoa, oh, stop. Stop. No. Come on. We can pull back on this. We don't have to do this. But what, does the machine just get going and it just basically has to keep getting made or is someone pushing it or – was it, a, was it a passion project on the part of Will Smith? What's what's behind it? What's, why didn't someone just call time on this?
4: Yeah, they should have pulled the
1: plug. The patient is dead, doctor. I'm convinced that at some stage, someone with a better sense of what would have made a good script and realising that this wasn't, is going to pitch it to HBO or to Netflix and it's going to be an eight-part miniseries or something like that, which... I think if done right, would actually work really well. I think it's a sort of story that lends itself to multiple parts. And feasibly, if you're doing it in that way, we might even be able to afford the luxury of an episode or two bringing it back to the book where you know, Robert Neville is going through all these uh, experiments to work out what's the science behind what makes these vampires tick. So, yeah, I'd... If there's anyone out there listening to the show that's saying, you know, I was just thinking about pitching this to Netflix, do it.
5: Well, are they pitching the 1971 version, in which case season two could be about Lisa and Dutch and the kids and what happens to them afterwards? And they basically they go to the countryside and there's a bizarre hillbilly clan of, uh, you know, albino mutants. Oh,
1: isn't that the hills
5: Have Eyes? Hey, this rots itself. (laughs) Anyone out there
4: listening, we're available to write your script for you. All right, we're going to take another break and play an interview with the screenwriter for I Am Legend, the original screenwriter for I Am Legend, Mr. Mark Protasevich. I am very curious how you decided to get into the screenwriting business.
7: When I was young, the first thing I thought I would do as a career was being an actor, and I'm I'm talking about from when I was maybe about 10 years old, and that lasted all the way up until maybe I was about 15 or so, and I really loved theater, and I really loved acting, and, and I was told actually I was pretty good at it, but the idea of auditioning live in front of people for the rest of my life was not very appealing. And also, I was always drawing. I was al- I was uh, always an artist. And so the next thing, sort of when I was a teenager, the next thing I thought I would do would be an illustrator uh, or a comic book artist. And that was really my focus uh, through most of high school. That's what I thought I was going to do. And I thought I would go to an art school. Try to have a job in uh, commercial art, specific. You know, I, w- I was a huge comic book and science fiction and fantasy fan, and so you know that that was going to be the type of work that I wanted to do. In all honesty, I think my skill set wasn't where it probably needed to be. I didn't pursue that path. Um, if I if I probably went to art school, I might have honed those skills and probably might have gotten there, but. In my, what was it, my junior year of high school, my high school offered one film studies class. It was film analysis. You know, the teacher would show us films and talk about films. And the other part of it was he offered the opportunity to make films. And so I started making Super 8 movies. And in in high school, when I was, you know, when I was about 16, 17, and I loved it. It was it was just really something that I uh, I gravitated towards and found very fulfilling. So film became my focus and I was always a movie fan. I, I was obsessed with movies and and, you know, would watch stuff on T V and go to the movies as much as possible to see in theaters. I was seeing everything I could. And I loved the whole movie experience. So it was during that time I thought film might be something I would want to pursue. And so I went to film school, I went to Columbia College in Chicago, and studied film after graduating high school. And in film school, I realized what I was most attracted to was screenwriting. You know, I I did make short films, but and I did enjoy directing, especially working with actors. But you know, I wasn't I wasn't an obsessive shooter. I mean, I I knew a lot of I knew a lot of people in, in in film school who later went on to be cinematographers and other people who were editors. But but they were they were doing that. They wanted to do that. I really loved the writing process. And the thing is, I had always been a writer. I realized that that was the other thing. Is that ever since I was fourth grade, and I was obsessed with vampires, and I carried around a little spiral notebook writing my own vampire stories. So the the writing aspect was always with me, and I wrote for my high school newspaper. So I was always writing. So, but when I was in film school, it was you know it was it was very clear to me that that was the one area of the filmmaking process that I was most attracted to. And, and that's what I re- and I was good at it, um, in, in terms of teacher feedback from my teachers. You know, the other thing too, that I was, I was, I was actually good at was, uh, I, I, I had, I focused a lot also on film history and criticism. And I, I really, I was obsessed with watching movies and foreign films and classic films and silent films. And so, and I, even at one point when I graduated film school, I thought about getting a, a master's degree, you know, in film history or film in film studies, and perhaps probably writing books about movies or teaching that type of thing. And I did teach for a while after college. I taught some basic film production courses. At a certain point, after four years of being in Chicago, or, or four years after four years after college and trying to pursue a career, sort of in the local film industry, I realized what I needed to do was move to L.A., and so that's what I did.
4: So what year was that that you moved to L.A.?
7: I was 25 years old, and I was born in 1961, so that makes it 1986.
4: And what did you do when you got out there?
7: I went out with the intention of becoming a screenwriter. That was my goal. Uh, And I had written, I had spent... About a year or six months in Chicago, six six months or so in Chicago, working on a script that I thought could uh, be my calling card. I, I was was you know I had written something that I thought oh this is you know this is uh this is a good script this is very it's you know I thought it was commercial at the time it was very influenced by <laughs> I would I would call it a a very. Sam Peckinpah-inspired script, sort of more not a western, but more of a modern, probably more akin to something like Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Or also, there's a movie I love called Rolling Thunder. It was similar to that. So it was sort of in that kind of genre. Uh, and this was at a time where those movies still <laughs> had a possibility of being made. Um, and and so I. You know, I sold I had broken up with a a girlfriend that I was living with in Chicago and sold almost everything I had. Sold most of my comic book collection and drove out to L.A. in my beat to crap Ford Escort with about five thousand dollars in my pocket. Drove to L.A. and had a place to stay with a couple of friends, a friend of mine who uh, was an editor and actually who has proven to have quite a career as an editor. His name's Peter Teschner, but Peter was a good friend of mine from Chicago and he and his wife, Gloria, put me up and I was supposed to stay at their place probably for a couple of weeks. And I think I ended up staying about, about three months. They were very kind to me until I could get my, you know, feet on the ground. Cause I didn't, I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't have any prospects really. I just sort of thought I would you know, go out and, 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 and not, not establish myself as a writer. I knew I didn't have that much, I didn't have that much money or that kind of thing. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to take a job, you know, doing something else, you know, like working as a wait, like actors who work as waiters or whatever. I didn't want to do that and then spend time writing. I, I wanted, I wanted some type of job and needed some type of job. I couldn't afford, uh, couldn't afford to otherwise. Uh, so I just started, I, I signed up with a temp agency and would do, you know, office jobs here and there. I could type fairly well, not great, but it, it would at least get me in the door. Um, and so I did, a, I started doing a lot of office jobs and I sent out a lot of resumes and answering ads uh, in the Hollywood Reporter and Variety and sort of my first real inroad came, I I answered an ad in one of the trades. It was either Variety or The Hollywood Reporter for a job as a receptionist at a production company. And at the time, it was a production company owned by Michael Douglas and Michael Phillips, the actor Michael Douglas and the producer Michael Phillips, who produced Taxi Driver and the thing. And they had their own production company. And I ended up getting the receptionist job. The people at that office were terrific. And one thing that I've found when I moved to LA was, is that people were really supportive. If you're really passionate about what you're doing and you're eager to prove yourself and you want to do things, I really find people want to help you. And, or at least that was my experience. And so they were great and they had their, they had an in-house reader, a story analyst and she would give me a lot of her uh, extra work, or they they would give me the extra, because I, because I had thought that was a good job for me, that would be a, the the perfect job for me. Uh, in how it would be a reader, would be a you know uh, you know the story analyst, uh, and and so I started doing that on the side at the comp at the production company, aside from you know writing letters and answering the phones and all that kind of stuff, and I got good at it. So I thought I had a really nice secure ground floor position in the industry. And then that Michael Douglas and Michael Phillips decided to end their partnership and we're going to go their separate ways and dissolve the company. But the people who I worked for, the development executives there, they were very supportive of me and they they kept their ears open for other jobs I might have. And I ended up getting a job after that with Scott Rudin, the producer Scott Rudin. The first year he was a producer, he had been an executive at Fox and was president of production at Fox, if I remember correctly, and was starting out on his own as a producer. And I got an interview with Scott and showed him some of my story work in terms of you write coverage as a reader. You know, you, you do a log, you do a short synopsis of the piece, of the script or the book and then you write a longer description. And so I showed Scott a lot of that stuff and I had a meeting with him and I ended up working for Scott for over a year. That first year he was a producer and I would say that I learned more about screenwriting and the film industry and how movies actually get made and what a script needs to achieve I learned more in that first year, in that one year with Scott than in four years of film school.
4: Do you remember any of the people that you were back then? Anybody that went on to bigger and better things?
7: I remember vividly there were three writers that I remember reading at that time where uh, I read their scripts and I was like, oh my God, this is screenwriting. This is real. This is what it's all about. And it was Scott Frank, Eric Roth, and Steve Zalian. And they're three of the best working writers right now and have been for many decades. And there's a reason why for that. I actually remember feeling that, and I haven't read it in a long time, and there have been other scripts, of course, but I remember reading Steve Zalian's script, original script for the movie Awakenings. I think it's a very flawed film and, and is problematic. I especially feel that way because I read his script, and it really is just one of the greatest scripts I've ever read, maybe the best script I've ever read. And I think you can find it online. Unfortunately, one of many occasions where, in my experience, where not only in stuff that I've seen or work of my own, where at least one version of the actual script, like whether it's the first draft or a, or a different draft or somewhere along the lines, that the script is so much better than the movie, which is the frustrating thing of any screenwriter, I feel. <laughs> That's the hardest thing.
4: So while you're working uh, with the Michaels and then working with Scott, are you also writing your own stuff at the same time?
7: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that was, I was, whatever job I had, I actually wor- eventually you know uh, i was offered a creative executive job i was offered jobs in development and i had those jobs for about oh i must have done that kind of work for about 7 years and and i was i was good at it i was i was you know i was what what was known as a story guy you know i was i would be i would work with the writers and i would you know look for original material and i would do story notes and um things like that and so i did that yeah. Yeah. Probably for about seven, eight years. But I was always writing. I, I I wrote I wrote one script every year in all of that time, no matter what kind of job I had. I mean, in some of those jobs were very demanding in terms of your time. But this is what I would say. I would get up an hour earlier every day than I had to and write for an hour before I had to go to my job little by little i would get a script it would take i would take me longer because i was only writing a little bit at a time but eventually i had a, a i eventually i had scripts and even the first script that i came out to la with there were some nibbles of interest in that and then over the years there were some interest in other scripts i had written even i was working at orion at the time at one time and as a i was the director of development there uh, this was during the time of like when Dances with Wolves and Silence of the Lambs came out, so it was it was a really wonderful place to be, and a really great group of people and then ultimately it went bankrupt but it was a, it was a really good time and and while I was there i had had I had written a script, and everybody at Orion, even the for the president of production Mark Platt, now a very successful producer, of course, everybody was supportive, and you know they would try to get my script to agents or to producers, and there were always little nibbles. But it's a, it's a long process. I mean, I wrote probably 8 to 10 scripts, feature scripts, over those years before I finally sold my first one and got an agent.
4: And which one was that?
7: That was The Cell. And that became my calling card. Whenever there's a sale, people will want to read the script, or the producer's Studio executives, they'll want to read it as a writing sample. So my agent sent out my script for The Cell as my writing sample. And then what happens is people want, if they like it, if executives or producers respond to the material or like your writing, they want to sit down and meet with you and offer you projects. And I had written one Project for MGM, uh, and then I had written a project for Fox 2000, which was a company at the time. And then I got a call to meet with Lorenzo de Bonaventura at Warner Brothers. Uh, Lorenzo, at that time, was a VP, about to become the president of the studio, and later, of course, would become a, a producer. So I went into a meeting at Warner Brothers with Lorenzo. And he said, I want to talk to you about three projects. The first is I Am Legend. And I said, we don't have to talk about the other two. I was flabbergasted because I was a huge fan of the Matheson book. My introduction to the material, though, was The Omega Man, which I saw in a drive-in theater in Springfield, Illinois when it, when it was first released later on when I was in film school and and immersing myself more, I think it was I think it was in film school when I was in college I read the Matheson book and then tracked down the Vincent Price film I knew the material and I knew Matheson and loved and so when Lorenzo said that they were thinking of doing a new version of the Omega Man or you know, calling it I am legend, you know, using utilizing stuff from the book too. Yeah, um, they didn't know really what they wanted. They just wanted to do a new they wanted to do I Am Legend. And I was just flabbergasted. I mean it, it's like it was it was like you know at the beginning of my career and you're being offered a dream project essentially. That night I went home and wrote out, like in a fever dream, wrote out like a uh, 12-page treatment of what I thought the movie could be, and then went back to Warner Brothers in a couple of days and met with Lorenzo and the producer of the project at the time, Neil Moritz, and pitched to them my whole take on the movie, and I got the job. There are certain times... That are wonderful for any creative person when the whole thing just kind of comes to you, where you it, it, it's not work. It's just you, the ideas are just flowing and forming. And I always say the the best prod the best scripts I've ever written is is when are when the movie exists in my head. It's like somehow the entire film from beginning to end exists in my head, and when I'm writing. All I'm really doing is describing what I'm seeing in my head and it just flows. It's just so easy going and I Am Legend was one of was one of those. And so I wrote that first draft in
4: 1996. The first draft that I see is November 6, 1996.
7: Yeah, that was it. So yeah, the I wrote the first draft of I Am Legend in 96. That script really got a lot of attention and really became my calling card more than the sell. I remember my agent at the time telling me, Mark, every year there is one script that every executive agent and producer in the business reads. And that year it was, I am legend. So that really solidified me as a, as a writer in the eyes of the industry. And in some ways within the industry, it's probably the script that I'm best known for my first script. I will have, and that's, that script's available online. And I'll have people like, I'll be at the airport and getting a rental car. And I'll have some guy say to me, you're my produce- I read your I am legend, your first, your original I am legend script. That's a great script. So it's, it's got that, it has a bit of a cult following that very first draft. And I'm, I still love that draft. I'm, I'm really proud of that draft. And it opened a lot of doors for me because, you know, one thing that happens is if you, you know, it's one thing to sell a spec script. It's another thing to do well on an assignment and you know it's sort of like the industry is kind of testing you as to how you can do uh if we give you if we give you a project if we give you an opportunity and if you show them that you can write something really good based on something they're giving you that's just what they're looking for you know i've i've i've, I've often thought that really there are writers screenwriters can take really one of two paths, although there there are vari- more variations now, but at least at that time, either you were going to try to do do your own material, you were going to just write original material and either do it independently or just write original specs, that type of thing, and, and sell those and be- when there was a spec market, but so you would write originals or which you, you could always write re- originals, but some people would choose to do just one, or you would put yourself out there as sort of a writer for, not as a sort of, but as a writer for hire, where you're going to the various studios or production companies and saying, you know, I'd like to know what you're thinking of doing. Or if you have a pitch, you can go and pitch pitch ideas to them, but you're working within the system. I've always compared screenwriting to, in, in a lot of ways, it's similar to being an architect you know you can design your own buildings but you need a system in place and financing and backers to build that building or build that house and and so most so most of the time you're doing work for hire you're bringing your personality and your style to it but you have to work with people you you're, you have to work with the client the, you know that has its own Challenges and its own um, ups and downs, and can be a great thing or can be a very, you know, can be a problematic thing. But I am Legend was was the script that sort of allowed me to have a career that is still going on today.
4: So, who's your client on that? Is that Bonaventura?
7: It's Warner Brothers. It's so the the, the 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 client in that regard is Warner Brothers, and the executives would change over the years on on it too. Because the 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 other thing that's interesting about I Am Legend is that my name, I began working on that in 96. And my last draft that I worked on for Warner Brothers was 2003. So I was involved with that project at four or five different times over a period of eight years. When it first sold within a few months, they put Arnold Schwarzenegger on it. Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to star. And this was coming on the heels, I think, of, I, you know, of, of I'm, he was at the top of the, the game right then. So it was a big thing. And then Ridley Scott was going to be the director. So it was going to be Ridley Scott and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And they hired a production designer, Arthur Max, who's worked with Ridley for years was working on it. I saw his storyboards and his, or not his storyboards, but his, some, a lot of his sketches, his introductory sketches, and they were doing location scouting and in the movie was going to get made. And then Warner brothers had a couple of big, they had a couple of big films really underperform. One of which was the postman. uh, If I remember correctly, there was something else. And so they suddenly were being very budget conscious and, Ridley's budget for I Am Legend was incredibly high. And so there were big problems there and the movie fell apart. Over the course of the next eight years, various directors came in and and it was always active. It was always something people talked about. And then in 2003, Will Smith said that he wanted to do it. And so I met with him and worked with him on retooling the script incorporating a lot of his ideas about the character and, and and that sort of thing. And Michael Bay was going to be the director. Everything was proceeding forward. And then Will and Michael had a bit of a falling out or there was some something going on with them. And then 28 Days Later came out around the same time. And everyone, Warner Brothers, it was like, oh, we can't. Go forward with ours right now because this movie's out there and getting a lot of attention, and it'd be way too similar. So they decide to wait, and then it wasn't until years later that Francis Lawrence came on and Will went back to it, and that's the movie that got made. But the other the other factor in there was that Akiva Goldsman was one of the produ- Akiva Goldsman was one of the producers as well, and Akiva wanted to do a rewrite. And so after being, you know, involved with this project for eight years, when it finally goes to being made, I'm off it. That type of thing happens all the time. And it's very frustrating. And I remember getting the phone call from the executive at Warner Brothers saying, oh, you know, I Am Legend's finally going to get made. It's been almost greenlit or we want to really move forward. Everyone's excited about it. Will's on board, uh, Francis Lawrence is going to direct and, you know, Will Smith's production company and Akiva's production company are going to be the ones who actually do the, do the, the producing. And it, but Akiva's got all these great ideas about how to rethink the script and they pitched to me what he's thinking. And I don't agree with any of it, but they were saying to me, we want you to do it. We want you to be the writer, but we want you to incorporate these new ideas and I I just didn't respond to the material at all. And I said, can we, you know, can we talk about this? And the next thing I know, I get a call, and I'm saying, oh, Akiva wants to do the rewrite himself. That's how it proceeds, and that draft of the script was what I was told it was going to be. It changed the whole concept of the movie. It was all the infected people, all the infected creatures were on the island of Manhattan, It wasn't widespread. It wasn't worldwide. It was, they're all on the island of Manhattan and all the bridges and access to Manhattan have been destroyed. And Will Smith's the only actual healthy human on Manhattan. He's there because his wife and daughter are there and he's working to find a cure there. But the rest of the country's fine. And the threat is that these creatures might get off the island. It just didn't make sense to me. It just, it, it was because also it just took away the whole last man on earth concept and I was, when the movie went into production, I was 100% convinced that that was the script that they were going to shoot, was Akiva's rewrite, where he reconceived the whole thing. And I go, I'm not going to have any credit on this movie at all. And it wasn't until the movie was well into production that I get the shooting draft, and it's essentially the draft that I worked on with Will in 2003. They went back to that. They, they realized at some point that that script wasn't working and so they went back and and then akiva essentially rewrote chunks of my of my script from the, the 2003 draft where we you know maintain the same basic formula all the i i when i look at the movie now i would say that the i feel like the first two thirds are very much my movie that's, you know, his relationship with the dog, everything, the way the creatures are, all that. But the final third of the movie, when the boy and the woman show up, is very different. That's where it becomes much more Akiva's movie or or that script. Um, you know, some of the dynamics are the same, especially the, if the final attack by the creatures on his house But that's, that's where it sort of became markedly different. It was a very different, like the, the girl was a much darker character, the, the whole, the, the boy was a very damaged and it was a, it was a, it was a much more, it was a darker, more complex story. And the, the whole, there were revelations about the creatures and, so anyhow, so the, I'm very happy. I'm proud of the movie. I'm happy with the movie's success. I have met so many people who love it, but it's not entirely the movie that I envisioned, but it's very rare for a screenwriter to be able to say that because it's in the process, especially when you're dealing with these huge sums of money and lots of, uh, personalities involved that, uh, Changes are going to be made.
4: Where does John Logan fit into this story?
7: When Ridley came on board, he brought on John Logan because they had just worked on a project together. And John Logan wrote a draft. I was so, I was off. I had worked on, you know, I'd been with the project for a long time. Everybody signs onto my script. And then I'm essentially told so long and Ridley brought on John Logan and I've read the John Logan draft. It's very interesting, and and it, it, it's an interest, but it's, it was very different and, um, than what I had done or proposed. And Warner Brothers did not approve the the John Logan draft, and pretty much insisted that I come back on. And so I wor- I worked with Ridley then on the draft on the draft that then was going into production with him. I've met. Ridley, since he, he was, he, there was actually one moment where he was thinking of coming back on years later, we met and, and had a wonderful kind of re-meeting, but it wasn't, it wasn't the uh, I, I think, I mean, you know, the studio was saying, we want you to work with Mark and he, you know, I, I don't know, you know, we got along fine. I did a lot of, I worked really hard with him. I was in his offices all the time and we were hammering out the script, but it, it was sort of like a, an arranged marriage.
4: I've read your 96 and then a uh, March of 97 draft and then Logan draft. I ha- haven't ever seen the 2003. So I'm curious, what was that like working with Will Smith in 2003 trying to get this going?
7: Even though I'm really fond of that original draft, I actually think the 2003 Will Smith draft was maybe the best draft of the script. So there were there were some really interesting ideas in that one. In that 2003 draft, when the girl and the boy show up, when Neville meets them, he rescues the girl, he rescues them or they meet and he takes the girl, he gets the girl to safety, but the little boy is taken by the creatures. And so he then takes the woman back to his home, his, you know, fortress home and tends to her. She's addicted to drugs. She's got a lot of problems psychologically. And so they're kind of developing a relationship, but both are under the assumption that the boy has been killed because he was taken by the creatures. Neville is very much about staying safe. He's all about staying in his house, being protected, not taking any risks, choosing the safe path. And She starts to challenge him on that, bringing up the idea, these stories that she's heard about there being other survivors somewhere, you know, we need to go out and maybe try to find them. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm safe here. We're safe here. We should stay here. Oh, this was another thing actually. In the that was in the uh, in the book and in the Omega Man, is that the creatures would torment Neville. They knew he was in there. They knew, you know, it was there. Were there was a lot. Of, they were they were trying to mess with his head or lure him out, that type of thing. So that was going on. But what they see at a certain point is that the leader of the creatures holds up the boy. It was her brother. It was her little brother in the in, in that script and showing them that they have him and he's alive. The girl help she goes we've got to go find him. We've got to go rescue him. We've got to find their hive. Their their central where do they sleep? Where do they gather? They must have a central place somewhere. Um so she's determined to go find, to go rescue her brother. And Neville's like no, it's a suicide. That's what they want us to do. We're we're dead. We, you know, you've got to just recon- you've got to just realize that you know, the boy is doomed, and, and if we go after him, we're going to die, and he won't let her leave. It, it, it you know becomes a bit of a control thing, and she drugs him, knocks him out, leaving him and 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 opens up his facility and and escape, and leaves and leaving him vulnerable so that the creatures attack. He manages to escape. Neville manages to escape, but his house is destroyed. And he doesn't know where the girl and the boy are or where the, and so where the creatures are, or I think he has figured out where their headquarters is, their lair, um, which was very creepy because it was in an abandoned hospital. And I always find like abandoned hospitals, very creepy. So he's at this point then in the story where, what does he do? You know, does he go off and try to find a new home and secure himself somewhere else? Or does he go try to find the girl and the boy and the human thing to do to regain his humanity? He goes and he goes to rescue them. So he goes to the hospital where he knows the creatures are and he goes in there and what he finds, what he discovers in the basement of that hospital is that the creatures are breeding, that they have offspring, that there are children, there are babies. It was a nod to the Matheson book that they're the next generation, that they're the next evolutionary form, that things are going to move differently, proceed differently. And him seeing their children and mothers caring for their children totally messes with Neville's head like, I've been killing these things and looking at them as monsters when they're just trying to survive and protect their offspring. And so he has a final confrontation with the, you know, the, 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 main antagonist, the main creature, he ends up killing him and he manages to escape with the girl, but he's the suggestion, he's not going to keep hunting and killing the, the creatures. They're going to get away and try to see if there are other people out there. And then that was how it, and that was how it ended.
4: That sounds r- remarkably different than what we ended up seeing on screen.
7: One of the things I was told was that the the main man at Warner Brothers at the time, Alan Horn, who's a very nice man, a very decent guy, but he felt it was just too dark. I was told that he wasn't, you know, he had pretty much said that he would not make that version of the movie. And so I think that's what led Akiva to rethink the girl and the boy and the very ending and, and all of that.
4: So. It's weird going through these different drafts. It feels like there's a couple different configurations that you can do. There's Courtman as the antagonist, or there's the more mindless antagonist, or there's no antagonist, or there's uh, a, a, the wife and daughter characters, or there's no wife and daughter characters, or there's the... Uh, you know the, mm-hmm. the girl that comes in at the end. Maybe she's got a son. Maybe she's got a little brother. And it feels like you just are kind of moving these same pieces around on a chessboard.
7: Like with any story, there are numerous variations. You know, there. Are, you know, in the first draft, the which was similar to in in the book and in um, uh, Omega Men, they could talk. They they did. They weren't mindless zombies. They weren't animals. They had sort of a complex philosophy and then that worried the studio about whether they would, whether that could be pulled off and should they be more of like, uh, I never wanted to call them zombies. I never called them zombies. And and there were drafts where the, there were drafts where there was much more about blood that they, that the vampiric element of the Matheson book was, uh, that, that blood did play a role. I did a number of drafts where that was, that was part of it.
4: Right, you refer to them as hemocytes
7: hemocytes, yeah, I know, which is a term which is a blood which is a blood term, and my my thinking was is that there was some probably some type of report done, and but somewhere along the line that got misinterpreted as misinterpreted as as that was what they were or or somehow that's what they became called, which I always thought was a pretty cool term, but I ended up really coming around to the idea um that they should be voiceless. And that they should be much more primitive and kind of savage. I one of my a lot of my notes. I, I remember watching documentaries about hyenas and about hyena behavior. Kind of modeled a lot of their action in the script around how hyenas behave, so that there was something kind of savage yet intelligent and clever about them. They weren't dumb. That in in none of my drafts they the uh, were they dim witted. They always had a certain cleverness to them, like smart animals. So yeah, that, was, that, was al- that was always kind of interesting to me.
4: So from what I understand, this relationship that you had with Will Smith in 2003 is also going to be leading you into working on Boy.
7: That's a whole other story. I was sitting in my office one day when I got a call, and it was from Will Smith's assistant saying, Will wants to talk to you. Will you be available in 15 minutes? And I'm like, sure. And so Will calls in about 15 minutes, and he says to me, Mark, I really loved working with you on I Am Legend. I want you to write my next project. And I go, of course. What is it? And he goes, it's a remake of Old Boy. Do you know Old Boy? And boy, did I know Old Boy. Uh, I loved Old Boy. I I was obsessed with Old Boy. And Will says, I want you to write the re... I want you to write... We're going to do a remake. I want you to write it. And I've advocated you to the director. And you have to come out to L.A. in a couple of days for all this to proceed. And you need to meet the director. And I go, okay. Who? And he goes, Steven Spielberg. And I pretty much was speechless at that point and Will said Steven really wants to do it. He's really interested. We he's watched the movie. We've talked about it. Um, we've got lots of ideas and he wants to he wants to meet you. And so just a few days later I was getting on a plane from Boston to LA and meeting Steven Spielberg and talking about Old Boy. The first thing I did actually was bring him the a set of the original graphic novels. I thought that he might not be aware of them, and so I wanted to share those with him. And I don't know how many people are familiar with the graphic novels of Old Boy, but they're, it's a very different story, and the revelations in it are very different from the film. So I just thought it was an interesting adaptation. And if we wanted to talk about maybe going in different directions, maybe there might be something in the original source material. So I brought that, and he was very intrigued by that, and we had a great conversation, and I was hired. You know, it was an incredible opportunity. You know, I I was, and when I talked to Steve, I met with Stephen, boy, three or four times I think probably on on that project, and we got along great. He loved all my ideas. And he had told me that he, whether Will might be a little hesitant or whatever, Stephen wanted to, he was determined not to do a light version of the story, to stick with the incest, to have it be intense and violent. And he was, you know, like if we do a watered down version of this, we're going to get raked over the coals. So we have, we ours has to be dar- as dark and twisted as the original or if not more. And I'm like, sounds great. And he's like, I want to do this. I'm, my son is, well, you know, my son loves the original movie, and we, we've got to, we've got to do this with some integrity, and we've got to do it with the same kind of intensity and same kind of style, and all this. So he was, you know, Stephen was on board to do probably the kind of movie that he he very rarely does, and um, I was really excited about that. And so I then spent about a, I don't know, probably a month. Writing a very detailed, very specific treatment it was probably a 30-page treatment that was similar to my experience with I Am Legend, where I really saw the movie, where I really knew what I wanted to do. And it all just became very clear to me and that I was really proud of that treatment. And I became very connected with the material. I was like, I, was like, I really want to do this. This is, this is going to be something. The day I turned in the treatment, I found out that there had been a big falling out between Steven Spielberg and the other producers, and the whole thing fell apart. And Steven wasn't going to do the movie, and because Steven wasn't going to do the movie, Will wasn't going to do the movie. You know, as great a day as it was getting the call from Will Smith, that was one of my worst days one of my worst professional days was finding out that that was all going to fall apart but i got a call from the producers saying look we love your treatment we'd love you to stay involved in this but we're going to do this as an and essentially as an independent movie with a lower budget and do it down and dirty we'd love for you to stay involved but you know we can't pay you what you normally get paid and blah, blah blah all this kind of stuff and but the thing is is that I had I had become so attached to that treatment I had become so attached to the material and I said okay I'll do that I'll do it if I can be a co-producer and be involved in the movie and if you like my first draft of the script I stay involved and 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 I become a participant in the making of the movie and and that's ultimately what happened and It was funny because I'm I'm really proud of that script. I'm I'm, I really I really think it's one of the best things I've done, and I've had other people say that to me. the, The the old boy script that I did, and we got a lot of there was a lot of interest from people. I heard all sorts of stories about people who were interested, but many of them didn't want to do it because of being compared to the original. And that was a, that was a big problem. The 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 one that I know was absolutely concrete was David Fincher wanted to do it, and he didn't have concerns about that. But he wanted to do it. But what he sent, what he told, what he said to the producers was, "If you, if I do this movie, I see you now, and then I see you at the screening." He wanted complete. wanted complete control. At least that's what I was told. But he he did not want any interference from the producers he wanted to do it and they wouldn't give him that. So he left. And so then we tried to get that. So then we went out to various people. And again, like I said, a lot of, we got a lot of good feedback about the script, but people were just afraid about, the comparisons to the remake until Spike came along and Spike was at a point in his career where he had just signed with a new agency and he wanted to prove that he could be a director for hire. He wanted to show people that he could do something different, not what was normally expected of him. And that's how that came about. And then Josh Brolin came on and and you know Josh really wanted to do it. And Josh and Spike and I met and, and everything went forward from that. And it's a Frustrating movie for me. I actually haven't watched it since it came out because again, it's one of the frustrations about being a screenwriter is that you have a certain vision of the movie in your head when we write the script and that vision is always there. And then when the director comes on board, he has his, vi- he or she has their vision. And I worked on, during the production of the cell I was on set I worked with Spike Spike and I got along fine Spike had and the producers had a contentious relationship so it wasn't it wasn't the easiest go of it there's a lot about the movie I love Josh is great in it I I think it's one of his best performances I like so much of what Spike did there's also, other stuff that was frustrating for me because it, I, I, it's it's not what I envisioned, and ultimately, I don't know if the movie entirely works because I don't know if this if Spike doing this kind of thing is what he's best at. I think he does thrive in doing things like Black Klansmen or Do the Right Thing, and and and, and that's where he's really. Committed and passionate, and and I, I, he's a very skilled filmmaker. But I don't know if he was the right director for the movie. I don't know who that right director was. Part of the problem was is that people were just a lot of fans of the original film were just opposed to the idea of a remake. Period. There was just such neg- a, such a negative perspective. Like when we were doing press press for the movie, every so many. People that I talked to were just like, convince me that this is a good idea. And, and that's a bad place to come from. What I've come to believe about myself and about that project is if I had gotten a call and someone asked me, a producer asked me, are you interested in writing the remake of Old Boy? I would have said no. But that's not the call I got. The call I got was, how about writing a remake of old boy, starring Will Smith, directed by Steven Spielberg. I'm not going to turn that down. But when they left, the headspace I was in was, I was so attached to the project. I was just so attached to what I had done creatively with it so far that I wanted to see
4: it through. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Have a good night. Okay. Bye. We're back and we were talking about the Omega Man and Last Man on Earth and I Am Legend. And I have to say, guys, I was over here laughing quite a bit when you were bringing up the idea of a Netflix series because sneak peek into next week when we talk about Annihilation. My co-hosts on that were saying, oh, this would work really well if we did the whole Southern Reach, Reach trilogy as a Netflix series. So there's something in the air right now. <laughs> it's like, you got a failing movie? Turn it into a Netflix uh, Netflix project.
5: <laughs> How long can this bubble last? And who even has the time to watch all of this stuff?
4: <laughs> yeah, I know I don't. I keep hearing about great TV shows that I just have no time to watch. I confess it's been a long time since I've watched Any
1: sort of multi-part TV show, my wife is always saying, hey, you know, try watching this, try watching that, and no, I'm still, my head's still in the old days of episodic TV, yep, let's have a half-hour episode when I feel like it, when I've got the time, otherwise. No, it's movies all the
4: way, baby. Yeah, it was kind of weird with this CBS All Access thing, how they're just releasing one episode a week of stuff, even stuff that's cancelled, like Swamp Thing, it's like, Why not just dump it all right now, guys? Come on. But no, it's every week. So I kind of like that, and I kind of like this whole idea, like watching Star Trek Discovery and having one episode each week. I was just like, okay, yeah, you're keeping me in suspense. I am very curious what's going to happen next. So it can still happen, guys. You can still do a week-to-week TV series. It's okay.
5: Deferred gratification is now retro.
4: That's so early 21st century. (laughs) So I want to thank you guys for coming on the show, and I'm very curious, Morris, what's the latest with you, sir? Well, uh, by the time this episode drops, we should have a couple of
1: new episodes. Well, one new episode, I love that album. Uh, I'll be talking with a wonderful film blogger, Kerry Gatley Fristo, about the 1971 album from Todd Rundgren, Something Anything. So uh, a lot of wonderful power pop talk there, I'm hoping. And uh, I've just finished editing, but we'll release... Later on in the month, an interview that I did with uh, director Jillian Armstrong about her 1982 film Starstruck. And I also had a discussion with um, uh, local uh, film scriptwriter or TV show scriptwriter, Mr. Paul Ryan. No, not that Paul Ryan. Yeah, but, uh, we had a lot of uh, interesting things I hope to say about Starstruck. And certainly it was absolutely marvellous having Jillian. Uh, on the show and she was she's very, very affectionate and very fond of uh, that film. I think she still calls it her baby and she's done a ton of stuff and everyone seems to remember her mostly for my brilliant career, but I, I think that Starstruck really did sort of start a lot of things in terms of uh, visual aspects of Australian cinema over the next 10, 15 years or so.
4: So, Andrew, what's keeping you busy these days?
5: Uh, my own. Private Dystopian Hell is my PhD, actually, which is almost finished. But I've also been uh, working on, I've got a new sort of pulp history book that I've uh, co-edited. It's called um, Sticking It to the Man, uh, Revolution and Counterculture in Pulp and Popular Fiction 1950 to 1980, uh, which I've co-edited with my friend Ian McIntyre and which is out via Oakland-based PM Press probably in October and in which we talk about the fiction of the fifties, sixties and seventies related to revolution, Black Power, Vietnam, The Weatherman, all kinds of all kinds of wonderful oddities. You can read all all kinds of things about the related to what we've been talking about in I am I you know in the Amiga Man.
4: Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, or I suppose maybe by the time this episode gets out, it'll be called Apple podcast That really rolls off the tongue, where you can read and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Thank you.